you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Zoe, that's Mac, and we take weird medieval texts tear them apart for your enjoyment, explain the weird medieval stuff to you, and then teach you how to turn it into a D&D or other TTRPG campaign. And we have all the social medias. We have a fantastic Discord group, which is growing so much. I think we have about 50 people in there now, which is fantastic. So if you are not already a part of our Discord, but would like to be, please, please come join us. We have links all over the place. We'll throw some links in our social media. We got our Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Please come join us. It's a fun time. We have many social medias. All the social medias. And if you are not as familiar with Discord, that is okay. Mac is also learning. That's true. How do you pluralize media? Because like, okay, just earlier today, I was watching a video essay and I, I disagreed with the presenter on how to pluralize medium. Oh. It was it was a Sarah Zed piece. And I love she kept her saying, stuff. I know. I love her stuff too. I, I was actually expecting to really disagree with most of this one because it was the new one entitled an exhaustive defense of fan fiction. Oh! I don't really enjoy fan fiction personally, so I was expecting to disagree with a lot of it. But I'm halfway through now, and so far the only thing I disagree with is that she keeps saying medium <laughs> instead of media. I mean, it's been... I'm gonna get this word wrong again. Anglicized? That is the, that is the correct one. I usually say Angli- Anglic- Anglicanized. Yeah, that's the yeah, wrong word. Anglicanized. Yeah, that's the wrong it sounds one. Sounds like you're talking about the Anglican church. Yeah, no, not that one. Uh... But I don't, I don't know. It's been changed over a long... It's like data. Data is plural. Everyone knows data is plural. Not everyone. No, because I've heard, I've heard people say data singularly and not know that it's like a datum. Like a data, like a data point. A singular data point. I mean, how often do you refer to a singular data point, though? In the humanities? That's usually I all mean, we have. Still, like, I feel like that's the reason we don't hear the word datum so much, because how often do you refer to a single datum? That's true. I guess that's fair. I don't know. I think medium, mediums, I guess different art mediums. That's how I've usually heard it. So I've usually heard it with the S. I've only heard, me- until until recently, until this today, video. I've, I've only heard mediums oh. like intentionally used when you're talking about more than one person who talks to the dead. That, yeah, that's fair. Interesting. I haven't, I haven't considered that. Well, it's multimedia, not multimediums. That's true. And social media, not social mediums. That's true. The many, the many social media. I think you're right. I, I don't think it's social medias. I, I think we should just say we're on many social media, we are on, I guess. Yes. Well. Because tr- trying to pluralize a plural just sounded weird. That's true. I mean, but the Latin populus for people can also be plural. You can have peoples. But I guess that's an exception to the rule. Anyway, this has yeah. nothing well, to do like with fish our topic. It's like fish and fishes. That's like true. Like fish is singular and fish is plural. But if you have more than one kind of fish, then it's fishes. Then it's fishes. That's true. Same for people. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, anyway, after that small linguistic aside. Someone needs to make like some official rulings on how you speak about social media regarding plurals. This is why English needs the equivalent of the Académie Française. Wait, are you a prescriptivist? No, but we should have some kind of agreement on it, shouldn't we? No, that that is not what English is about. 
you understand our history of English and its botched origins. You don't think that we should have a little bit of pizzazz, a little bit of spice? We've had, like, a decade or two for a solution to emerge naturally, and now that it hasn't, we need to figure it out. I don't know. I feel like it probably has globally, we just don't have the data points. Fair. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, listeners, all of that aside... We are returning to one of my favorite works today, Aix Saga. Speaking of linguistic problems. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, because it can also be pronounced, or I guess it looks like it's spelled, Egil, E-G-I-L. So forgive us for our poor pronunciation. There are lapses. I am not proficient in Icelandic, unfortunately. Oh, I meant the deficiencies in the translation. Oh, well, yes, that too, of course. We can never... Because you're using that 19th century one where <laughs> the sentences get so confusing, we get lost. Okay, to be fair, I I did go through the entire thing this time, and it wasn't that bad. I didn't think it was okay. that bad this time. But let's recap what happened in our first episode of Aix Saga. So... There's a Viking called Fedulf, Nightwolf is his name. He's got two kids, Skalagrim and Thorolf. One day, King Harald Fairhair asks Fedulf to pay homage to him because he's taken over the rest of Norway. And Fedulf says, nah, he's going to remain neutral. But Thorolf decides that he's going to be one of King Harald's lieges, essentially. Kvedulf is grumpy about all of this and foretells that this will be bad for Thorolf and the family. And Thorolf, on the other hand, says that he's going to get great renown from the king. He becomes a great lord and ends up inheriting his best friend's land and estates. And this friend's illegitimate... Illegitimate? They were technically legitimate and then... Yeah, they're legitimate. This guy, like, delegitimized them. Anyway, these quote-unquote illegitimate kids, Hrerik and Hrerik, <laughs> the best, like, twin names ever. Anyway, we've got Hrerik and Hrerik, and there's only one letter difference there. But anyway, they get upset that they've been delegitimized and can't inherit any of this great land. And so they enact feud and basically start a propaganda campaign and whisper poison into King Harald's ear about Thorolf wanting to take over the land and be his own king. So he sends men to take out Thorolf. This fails several times until two mercenaries succeed in killing Thorolf, and Thorolf's wife, Sigurd, ends up in a kind of a forced, unhappy marriage. And that's essentially where we left off. And what's going to happen is news gets back to Kvedulf and Skatlegrim. All right, so... With that, let me scooch on down to chapter 24, which is where we were. I forgot we got all the way to 24. I know. I'm only partway through editing that episode. I'm I'm at the part where we're just passing chapter 10. That's the nice thing about the sagas. They go pretty quickly. Once we hit this part of the saga, we start to get these weird verses, which I'm not going to read all of these poetic verses, but I am going to read some of them because they're really cool and... They are kind of part and parcel for the genre. Even though it's a family saga, it was common to have the poems with kennings to sort of show off the poets and the teller's skills. So I will read some of them. Chapter 24. Kvedulf's Grief. Kvedulf heard that his son Thorolf was dead and so deeply grieved 
was he at the tidings that he took to his bed from sorrow and age. Scotlagrim came often to him and talked with him, and he bade him cheer up. Anything was more fitting than to become worthless and lie bedridden. Better counsel is it that we seek to avenge Thorolf. Maybe we'll come across some of those who took part in his killing, but if not, then there will be men who we can reach, and thereby we can displease the king. And then Kvedulf sang a song. Thorolf... <laughs> <laughs> Twinkle, twinkle. I mean, I think it's more like the wife's lament sort of thing, but uh, I'll let you be the judge. Thorolf in the Northern Isle, O cruel Norns, is dead. Too soon the Thunder God has taken my warrior son. Thor's heavy wrestler, age, holds my weak limbs from fray. Though keen my spirit spurs on, no speedy vengeance will be mine. I like the uh, solid mythological reference. There. Yeah, not too often that we get one of those. Yeah, for those of you who may not be aware, in one of the surviving Norse myths... All right, well, it shows up in the Prose Edda anyway, but it's the story of Utgar the Loki. And Thor and his companions go to a hall where they that's owned by a giant named Utgar the Loki. And they're presented with a series of challenges. where They're like, all right... Loki, can you eat this plate of food faster than my retainer can? And Loki fails. And it's like, Thor, can you pick up this cat? And no, he cannot. And the one that they're referring to is where Thor is challenged to a wrestling match and he loses. And then it's revealed at the end that all of the challenges were disguised by illusions, that the person doing the eating contest against Loki was fire. And then the cat that Thor tried to pick up was Jormungandr, the world serpent. Mm -hmm. And the old woman to whom Thor lost in wrestling was old age herself. Yes. You can't beat old age. So that's age. the illusion. All right. So after Fadal sings this mythological morning song, we skip to learn that King Harold went up to Upland that summer and then in the autumn went to Valrace. And Alvir Hnuf, this is a, an important name, you're going to want to remember this name. Alvir Hnuf? Alvir Hnuf, H-N-U-F, was with the king, and often spoke with him about whether he would pay atonement for Thorolf. That is to say, pay the guild, pay the, the blood money to Kfedolf and Skatligrim. The king did not altogether refuse if father and son would come to him, and then answered Kfedolf. I'm skipping just a little bit, because they go to see the king. And Kvedolf says, Good is what you say, for it is an old saw that he will be avenged who falls forward, and that vengeance will reach him who stands before him when he falls. Yet it is unlikely that good fortune will be ours. And Alvir told father and son that he hoped that they would actually go to the king and crave atonement, and that it would be a journey to their honor. And Kvedolf said that he was too old to travel and that he would just sit at home, which is fairly dishonorable for the period uh, and the culture at this time. But again, as an older man, you would likely get away with this. But he's sort of taking the uh, cowardly, unhonorable way out, shall we say. I mean, you do get the impression from Kvedolf that he doesn't really care what society thinks about whether or not he has honor. True. Like, he just wants to sit at home and be left alone. That's true. So Alvir asks Grimm if he will go. And Grimm says, mm, nah, not really. 
He is his father's son. He is, very much. I have no errand over there. I shall seem to the king not fluent in speech, nor do I think that I shall pray for atonement from him. And Alivir said, well, you won't need to do that. We will do all the speaking for you. And so seeing that Alivir had pressed and pressed and pressed, Grimm promised that he would go when they were ready. And so Alivir went away first and returned to the king. And later, Scott Legrim made ready for this journey, choosing out of his household and neighbors the strongest that were to be found. One was Ani, a wealthy landowner, another Grani, and a third Grimwolf and his brother Grim, housecarls of Scott Legrim. And these two brothers, Thorbjorn Krum and Thord Begaldi. I'm sorry, did you say that Scott Legrim, whose name is Grim, Scotland is just a prefix, mm-hmm. has retainers called Grim and Grimwolf? Yes, correct. Scott Grim, son of Ulf, has retainers called Grim and Grimwolf. Yes. Are there more than two names in this town? No. There's also a lot of, there's Thorbjorn, there's also Thorgir Earthlong, Thorbjorn Giant, and Odd Lone Dweller, and Gris Friedman. I think the only one of those names that I haven't met at least ten of in the sagas is Gris. Yes. And I brought this paragraph in only for the names because one, I really, really like Icelandic names and I think they're super cool, but also because I just want to illustrate how these names are put together. They're using a lot of common prefixes like Thor. Like, why not? You're going to name your kid after after a god. You're just going to add a different ending onto it. So anyway, just to illustrate the names there, because I think they're fun. And even today, Iceland has a list of approved names and you can't use any outside of that. That's true. Future Mac here. I checked to be sure this is still the case, and it is. Although they're not inflexible about it, they do allow new names to be proposed and approved. But the list is still, I think, less than 4,000 legally available options. I did find the fascinating development that in 2019, they officially abolished gender requirements on names. It had previously been the case that they had a list of male names and a list of female names, and, like, that was that. And if you named your child in a gender non-conforming way, there would be difficulties with the naming committee. However, this apparently changed in 2019. Icelandic names are no longer officially gendered. And moreover, in your patro or matronymic, that is, instead of English-style surnames in Iceland, your last name is just your parents' name plus son or daughter. Iceland now allows non-binary individuals to have their patromatronymic read as child of X rather than son or daughter of X. I thought that was pretty cool, and I wanted to share it. They also have a genetic database so you don't accidentally marry your cousin or something like that. Well, that's that's a good idea in such an insular community. Yeah, exactly. Future Mac here again. This one's also true, but it's not like that's the only use of the database. It's just a use of the database and a sensible one. All right. They came there at this time as the king had gone to table. Some men they had found to speak within the yard and asked what was going on. And Grim begged one to call Alvir Hnuf to speak with him. And he went in to where Alvir sat and said, there's a guy outside with 12 other dudes, and they're calling on you, and they are liker to giants in stature and semblance than to mortal men. So, like, these guys are massive. This is sort of like the berserker thing that is usually brought about, kind of illustratively. 
And so Alvir, of course, at once goes and immediately knew who had come, I think, because like Skatlgrim and Kvedulf are such supernatural beings as they are. They did come from troll ancestry. Like, you kind of figure that these guys are going to look a little bit different than quote-unquote normal men at this time. Grim said to his comrades, It's the custom here that men go weaponless before the king. Six of us shall go in, and the other six shall bide without, that is to say, outside, and keep to our weapons. And I bring this up because this will be a custom that we also see. Well, I guess we don't see it in... Beowulf, because I think they... Oh, no, we do see it in Beowulf. Do they leave their weapons? I think they, they leave, leave their, their weapons, weapons behind in Beowulf. Yeah. I don't remember. I believe they do, but there's all the shields and stuff on the walls in the hall. Mm-hmm. So we see this in Beowulf, and of course we see it again in The Lord of the Rings when the Fellowship, as it were, come to Theoden's Hall. Right, no, I remember the scene. They're like, no one can bring in weapons, and then Aragorn's like... You wouldn't forbid, like, old a young man step. his shiny, sharp walking stick. Yeah, of course. Yeah, never let the wizard then, in with a staff. And then Legolas is like, what about my quiver of very small walking sticks? <laughs> I can bring those in, right? Oh, all the little the little walking sticks. They're my little set of pickup sticks, that's all. The feathers are decoration. <laughs> so, there's a little taste of Tolkien, but I, that's where we're coming from here, is from that Old English tradition, and also from the Icelandic tradition. So, anyway... Six guys stay outside, hold all the weapons, take care of them. So, Grimm comes in, and Alvir speaks fully and fluently, for he was a man ready with words. And the king looked around and saw that a man stood at Alvir's back, taller than the others by a head, and bald. Is that Scotla Grimm, that tall man? Grimm said that he guessed rightly. If you crave atonement for Thorolf... Then I want you to become my liege man and enter my guard here and serve me. Maybe I shall so like your service, and I'll grant the atonement for your brother, or other honors not less than I granted him, but you must know how to keep at it better than he did, and I will make you a man as great as he was. Now, I don't know about you, but if my brother was just killed and, like, the guy who killed him owed me a guild, mm-hmm. like, he owes me blood money. But this guy has the balls to just say, I mean, I'll grant you atonement if you become my liege. I can't imagine. All right. Now, I don't remember this story very well, but I remember the character of Scott Legream. And I can't imagine him doing anything that doesn't involve killing this guy. Mm-hmm. Precisely. I have a few words about King Harold here, and they can be summed up in that was a bad cooning. <laughs> Not a good cooning. Scotlagrim answered, It's well known how far superior Thorolf was to me in every way, and he got no luck by serving you, O king. Now, I will not take that counsel. I will not serve you, for I know that I'm not going to have any luck by yielding service to you. I think that I shall fail here more than Thorolf. And the king was silent, and his face became blood red. And remember, this is a trait of... Actually... It occurs in Irish lore, it occurs in English lore, it also occurs in Icelandic lore, that men don't really express emotion except if it's in poetic verse or through their face. Yeah, they're all mood rings. Yeah, they're all mood rings. They'll they'll go white, they'll go red, they'll go purple, there'll be like steam coming off of them, like in cartoons, but they're not going to actually voice what's going on inside their head. So... 
the king becomes blood red, and Alavir, of course, at once, like, turns away, and he hustles Grimm out of the hall. And they went, they took their weapons, and Alavir's like, you need to get out. And he escorts them to the waterside and says, Kinsman, your journey to the king has not ended the way that I had hoped it would. I urged you to come here, but now I entreat you, go home with all speed and do not face the king again, unless there's a better agreement between you than now is likely, and stay away from the men in every capacity. You know, I don't think I like this Harold guy much. Nah, he's kind of a d- Yeah. Then Grimm and his company went over water, but Alvir with his men, going to the ships drawn up by the waterside, hacked them about so that none of them were fit to launch. Oh, the ships. <laughs> <laughs> Not the other men, no. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely how I heard it at first. And I was like, that sounds sudden. Yeah, so essentially, Alavir has Scott Grimm's back and is ensuring that none of the other ships can launch so they can't go after Grimm. And I really like this phrasing. The king had soon found words for Grimm after he went out and said, This I see in that tall, bald head that he is brimful of wolfishness, and he will, if he can reach them, work scathe on men whom we should be loth to lose. You want to translate that into, like, contemporary (laughs) English? This bald guy has a temper on him, and if he gets his way, he's going to kill people that we really don't want him to kill. And the king also says he's got a grudge and he will spare no one if he gets the chance to kill them. All right, now translate it into Elizabethan English. Elizabethan? <laughs> Elizabethan? That's some Shakespeare shit. Now, Nigerian pigeon. <laughs> I would not dare. No, you probably should It's beautiful, but I don't, I do not know that pigeon. Future Mac here, again. I checked into this one also. While it's still commonly referred to as Nigerian pigeon, given that it is more of a creole than a pigeon and therefore a distinct language in its own right rather than a dialect of english there's currently a process underway to start calling it naija i think i'm saying that right rather than nigerian pigeon so i am intervening to correct my past self anyway the king says go after him and slay him So instead of, like, making things better or trying to do anything correctly, King Harold's gonna Game of Thrones this bit and go after Scott Legrim to kill him. He just wants this problem out of the way. So upon this, they went and came to the water and they saw that there were no ships. So they went back and told the king what went on and the king is now plotting to find a way to kill Scott Legrim. Meanwhile, Scott Legrim goes home and tells Kvadolf what happened. And Kvadolf is very pleased that he did not make a deal with the king. And said that, of course, if he did, there would have only been loss and no amends. And they spoke often of their plans, and on this they were agreed that they would not be able to remain in the land any more than other men who were at enmity with the king. And so they would go abroad. And it was desirable to them to go to Iceland, because there was good reports about the land there. And then... Yes, Thorir. There's a new guy, Thorir. Crawled some. Is he getting a proper introduction? Like with a there was a man called Thorir, and he was the son of Ulf, and he was the son of Thorir, and he was the son of Ulf also. We don't have that, but we do have Thorir. Crawled son had been a childhood friend and foster with Kvedulf. 
Oh, so he's part of the family. Essentially. So he doesn't need his, his thing. So he and Scott Legrim are about the same age, and they're foster brothers. So if we remember how Thorwolf and Bard were basically foster brothers, Thorir and Scott Legrim are foster brothers. So we're going mm. to have this match again of really ugly looking guy and really pretty looking guy being best friends. It's a motif. Tis indeed. So point here is Thorir comes and decides to go. He doesn't immediately go with them. But the point is, is the story is introducing him as a character who will come back. And the tricky thing about these sagas is as you read through, there are so many names, you don't know which ones are going to be important. So that's why I bring this up. If it feels random, it's because it's in a long list of names. So anyway, they go over to Iceland. And all through the summer, Fedulf and Scott Grimm kept a lookout shorewards on the highway of vessels, which I really like as a kenning for the ocean. Mm-hmm. Scott Grimm was very sharp-sighted, and he saw Halvard's company sailing by and knew of the ship, for he had seen it before when Thorgils went with it. Now remember, Halvard was one of the mercenaries who took Thorolf's ship and who killed Thorolf. I did not remember that. That's why I'm bringing it up. So the two mercenaries were Halvard and Sigtrig. So, Scott Legram watched their course, and they laid to in Haven at Eventide. That is to say, they found a bay, they stopped for the night. Haven is just like the old-fashioned way of saying harbor, which is how we got the current meaning Haven as a safe place. Yes. It's also where Tolkien got the Grey Havens. I'm just going to drop all the Tolkien lore when I can. (laughs) So... Scott Legrim sees this ship, and he goes back and reports to his dad, hey, there's going to be some men worth catching on that ship. We know that there are enemies. And so they ambush the ship. And when Kvedulf's force came upon them, there were watchmen who sat at the gangway, and they leapt up and called out to the rest of the ship. And Halvard's party leapt up to their weapons. But when Kvedulf and his men came to the gangway end... He went out by the stern gangway, while Scott Legrim went forward to the other gangway. So they're coming up both sides of the ship. And what follows is a very interesting account of a real, quote-unquote, Viking battle. Oh, I was getting distracted by the idea that the stern gangway might not be at the stern, but it might just be a gangway that you have to go up while being stern. (laughs) I'm sure that's part of it if you're going into battle, regardless. So... Here's this description of the battle, which I think is very fun. And writers, prick up your ears. We don't get enough cool battles, how they were actually described, quote unquote, back in the day. So even though this is a translation, I still think it has a little fun pizzazz. And if you have regular human ears that don't prick up, just listen. That works too. Kvedolf had in his hand a battle axe, but when he got on board, he bade his men go along the outer way by the gun wall and cut the tent from its forks. I think you need to define all of those terms. Uh, yes. This is going to be helpful for the riders. Yes, it will. So a lot of the time, a Viking ship, and you can think about it sort of in that long, like, banana shape, like it's a uh, like a banana split. What? <laughs> I've never made that connection of a banana shape. It looks like a banana. <laughs> I mean, now I can't unsee it. All Viking boats look like bananas to me. So anyway... <laughs> I'd say you should try and tell a Viking that, but they probably wouldn't know what a banana is. I'm sure they wouldn't. Anyway, also, bananas are bad luck to have on boats. That is the, there's a superstition. Is is it because you slip on the peels? It's not, I wish it were. It's actually because the (laughs) potassium can eat through the wood. 
and it caused a lot of ship sinkings. And so people just associated that with the banana in the 17 and 1800s. And so you will still see people to this day not bring bananas on boats and not allow bananas on boats. And if you walk around certain docks, particularly in Europe, you will see leftover bananas sitting on the dock because they will they are not welcome on the boat. How did we get how do we get bananas from place to place then? I mean, we did have to ship them via boat. It was just bad luck to do so. No, I mean still. <laughs> I don't know. I guess you just had to be very ill-fated or be very well-fated in order to be a a banana merchant. So anyway. um, Yeah, you were going to define some terms. Yes, I'm trying to define the parts of a Viking ship. So what you could do on a ship and what you still can do is take the sailcloth and take it from one side of the ship across the what's called the boom it's the horizontal like chunk of wood on the sail and you can go over that and make essentially a tent and that way you have shelter at night it's named after the sound it makes when you use it to knock someone overboard i mean absolutely for those who are still having a hard time picturing this it is the thing that jack sparrow used to basically whack will turner over the side of the ship while he's like getting him to cooperate in the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Which is apparently a real thing, because I had forgotten that happened in the movie, but I definitely remember my high school teachers in history class talking about lowering the boom as a way to eject people from ships against their will. That was definitely one way to do it, absolutely. Yeah, you actually have to be very, very careful when you're turning on a ship, because the boom goes from one side to the other, because the wind catches it, and... Like You will get a concussion. You can be knocked out if you get hit in the head with that piece of wood swinging over. And especially now because they're made of, you know, metal. But anyway, yes. So you have this little tent thing on the ship. The gun walls are the sides of the ship, essentially. Now, is that spelled W-A-L-L or W-A-L-E? G-U-N-W-A-L-E. Okay, that's what I thought. Yep. So I've seen that. I've seen that, but I did not know it was pronounced gunwale. gunwale. I always thought gunwale in my head. Uh, it's like leeward as well, because it looks like leeward. Is it not leeward? Mm-mm, it's leeward, because it, it slurs together. <laughs> Is there an equivalent to landlubbers that like we can call you boat people? Um, there is. I can't remember it though. Because I, I feel the need to, to like, scoff at the boat people and their word. <laughs> Pronunciations? Mangling. Yes. Yeah. I know that there is, but I can't, I can't recall it at the moment. I had to figure out that um, in England, they call, like, buoys, you know, the, the big things that are on the water that kind of indicate mm-hmm. where you should go. In England, they, again, they slur that. And so it just sounds like boys. They call it a boy. I've heard that, actually. Yeah. So that one took me a little getting used to. But anyway, so what's going on here is Kvedulf gets on board and he's at the front of the boat, the bow. And he's... The stem of the banana. Yes, the stem of the banana where the dragon's head is. Exactly. (laughs) And he's telling his men to go along the outer side of the ship and cut the tent from its fork. So he's saying, cut off that sail over top. While he rushed to the stern castle, like to the back of the boat. What are the forks? I think those are just like the tie downs. Okay. That's not like a technical modern term in sailing, as far as I know. 
So it's just where where they're tied down. And to be clear, the stern castle is just like the tall bit at the back, yes, right? Yes, correct. All right. So it was said that then he had a fit of shape strength, and also several of his comrades did as well. They slew all that came in their way, and Scott Legrim did the same where he boarded the ship. Nor did father and son stay their hands until the ship was cleared. When Kvedulf came aft to the stern castle, he brandished his battle axe high and smote Halvard right through the helm and head, so that the axe sank even to its shaft, and he snatched it back towards him so forcibly that he he whirled Halvard aloft and slung him overboard. <laughs> Alright, so you said shape strength earlier. Yes. Is Kvedulf turning into a werewolf? I think so. I think this is where the the whole berserker thing comes from. Like the bear shirt, but also like they look like bears or they have this like shape-shifting ability. We can remember back at the very start of this saga, Kvedolf is the night wolf, a werewolf. He goes prowling around, you know, in the moors at night. So in this sense, he's not turning, I don't think, into a full wolf like he does at night, but he's at least sort of hulking out into this werewolfy shape. So yes, that is precisely what's going on. And I like the Mortal Kombat ending here, where he goes- Fatality. Exactly. Finish him. He goes straight through the helmet into the guy's skull, and he yanks it out so quickly that the, the whole momentum slings this guy's body up and over, like being hit by a giant in Skyrim, and flings him into the air and over the side of the ship into the water. Yeah, if anyone out there is interested in, like, is writing something that includes medieval action scenes, the sagas are what to read. Exactly. There are a lot of that. I think it's in Greta's saga. There's a scene where they fight on top of a dead whale, and it's, like, the best action scene I've ever read in my life. I don't remember that. I might be thinking of the wrong saga. Let me Google it real quick. We gotta read Greta's saga anyway, but that sounds amazing. While you look that up, I'm just gonna finish the paragraph. So Scatlegrim clears the forecastle, that is to say the front of the boat, and slays Sigtrig, and many men plunged into the sea, but Scatlegrim's men took one of the boats and rowed after them and slew everyone that was swimming. Ooh, which is just like in the water? Brutal. Yeah, in the water. Can you imagine? Like a Civil War battlefield with bayonets, like stabbing guys, except they're doing it in the water while they're on a boat. Ew. Nasty. Brutal. Put it in a book. Also, I found it. It is in Greta's saga. It has less detail than I remember because I, I think the saga thing guys like elaborated on it a little of bit. Course. And that's what stuck in my head. But there is someone who gets beaten to death with a whale rib. Those are big too. And I think people are using like chunks of blubber as bludgeoning items. <laughs> I mean, blubber is really heavy, but I don't know whether you'd like kill somebody via force or whether you're just smothering them. I think you're knocking them off the whale into the water and then they drown. Oh, like a really f***ed up pillow fight. Yes, exactly like that. Dude, the Vikings are wild. Alrighty. So, despite, like, going after the men who are in the water and, I suppose, stabbing them to death until they have, like, enough holes in their lungs that they're simultaneously drowning on blood and seawater... Scott Legrim does set free the men that he spares. I don't know how many that is, but the reason he does this is because he tells them to go to King Harold and give them the tale of what had happened. 
And to do so, he says, I want you to sing them this song. And he gives them a verse for the king. Luckily, we're in the saga world. So if you're if you hear a poem, you just automatically memorize it and spread it like that just happens. It's assumed. But if we were in any other genre, can you imagine if someone's like, okay, (laughs) I've decided to spare you so that you can take a message back to the king. It's in verse. Memorize it. And then he starts reciting it at you while still covered in the blood of your, like, buddies. I feel like there would be enough trauma in that moment that you'd either forget the entire thing or you would never forget it for the rest of your life. Two options. Yeah. So the verse, in short, is... For a noble warrior slain, vengeance now is taken on the king. Wolf and eagle tread as prey, princes born to sovereign sway. Halvard's body cloven through, headlong in the billows flew. Wounds of white, once swift to fare, swooping vultures beak doth tear. Of course, it does not rhyme in the original, that is the... That's what I was just thinking. Like, how much did this translator mutilate that verse to make it rhyme in English? I know. I do like that we get we get the beast of battle motif. We do get the wolf and the eagle. We also get the vulture instead of the crow, but it's close enough. Or did we? Maybe the translator made it up. Who knows? I checked. It's in the original. That that is a frustrating part of reading a translation. At least when it's when it's as clearly freely translated as that was true true Alrighty. so now we get the aftermath of this battle and i think this section is very very cool because it illustrates sort of the consequences of being a shapeshifter and you know going berserk it is said of shape strong men or men with a fit of berserk fury, that while the fit lasts, they are so strong that no one can withstand them but when it passes they're weaker than usual even so it was with Kvedulf. When the shape-strong fit went from him, he then felt exhaustion from what he had done and became so utterly weak that he lay in bed. Kvedulf's sickness grew worse, and when it came to this, that he realized his death was near, he called to his shipmates and told them that he thought that they would soon take different ways, that is to say, die. I have never been an ailing man, but it seems likely to me that I will die. So make me a coffin and put me overboard. It will go farther otherwise, and I think that I will come to Iceland and take land there. You shall bear my greeting to my son Grim when you meet, and tell him, if he does come to Iceland, what has happened here. And make a homestead where my body has come ashore. So at this point, they took two different ships after that. Well, they originally took two different ships, but... So, hold on, hold on, hold on. He's saying, put me in a coffin, and then put me over the side of the ship, and we're going to assume that the currents will take me to Iceland. Yes. And then wherever I wash up, build a house. Precisely. That's interesting. He is sure of fate in this moment, which I think is really cool and could be a really, really interesting motif for a character. Yeah. And then shortly after this, Fadolf died. His shipmates did as he had bidden them, and they laid him in a coffin and shot it overboard. Did you say shot? That's how it's translated, and I really like it, so I kept it. (laughs) Like, out of a cannon? They shot it overboard. I think it says, like, they pushed it off, like, with the oars, but I just like the idea that they're like, Wah! <laughs> it just goes. <laughs> I'm imagining the end of Wrath of Khan, where <laughs> the, the coffin is like a, a photon torpedo, and they fire it out. 
<laughs> oh man, something like that. It should also be noted before we move on too much that it was a tradition for people who are moving to Iceland to throw the high seat pillars of their house overboard and settle where they washed up. So this isn't completely out of left field. It's just a, a variation on that tradition, on a standard theme. Yep. Now, what exactly a high seat pillar is and what cultural slash religious significance it has, you'll have to ask someone else because I feel like we've lost most of that post conversion of Iceland. Yes, unfortunately. It was definitely a pagan thing. So, at this point, Kvedolf has died, they push the coffin overboard, and the weather grows really sour, and so the two ships end up being pushed apart. But Kvedolf's boat does end up washing ashore. Yes. Is Kvedolf's boat the, an actual boat, or is this how we're referring to the coffin? That's how I'm referring to the ship that he was piloting before he died. Okay. Like, the, the, the men who are now on the ship where he was. Okay. Yes. They do end up going to Iceland and they find Kvedolf's coffin cast up, like, upriver in a creek. And they carry the coffin and set it down and raise stones over it and make a little burial mound for him. Frankly, it's amazing they found it. Not only that it made it all the way to Iceland, but then they then were able to locate it. It, it is quite impressive that they were able to do that, but I kind of assume they're taking the same kind of current in that direction. And also, Icelandic beaches are pretty nice. They're they're not shallow, but they're easy. It's not like rocky cliffs everywhere. There's parts that are like that, but there's a lot of land to wash up on. But yeah, the fact that it like went all the way up a creek is pretty impressive. And they found it. Yeah. Wait, up a creek? Up a creek. Yeah, it went up a creek. I feel like there's a physics problem there. Well, there is a point at which the waves push water up. Okay, hang on. I have to explain this because I'm from Alaska, so Iceland and Alaska have very similar land. I mean, I remember Hildegard saying that water flowed from the ocean <laughs> to the rivers, but I also remember us saying that was wrong. Yes, yes. Okay, the way that I read this is it's probably a glacial or seasonal river in which during different times of the year it can rise and be very powerful, like during the spring and summer when the snow on the glaciers melts and rushes out. But when it's not like that, it's very flat and shallow. And then water, uh, like the waves, the ocean can press up into the river and the creek. So that's how I like pictured it. Because then it would have a little ways to go. But either way. That makes enough sense to me. And given that, you know, Alaska, Iceland, similar latitudes, I'm willing to believe <laughs> that's completely accurate. I don't think it would go very far up the river, I think it could be pushed up shore. Anyway, Scatlagrim comes to a large ness. There's another term for this. A ness is a headland. Yeah, the headland. Runs out into the sea. Also, I thought you said nest at first, <laughs> and I was having a weird mental image. That would be very strange. But yes, he comes to where a large ness, the headland, comes pushes out into the sea, and it was a narrow isthmus. And there they put out their landing. They called it Shipness. Then Scotlagrim spied out land. There was moorland and wide woods and a broad space between the fells and the firths, seal hunting in plenty and good fishing. And there they found their companions. They had a joyful meeting and they figure out, okay, here's the coffin. And Scotlagrim sets up a homestead. All and right. I skip a lot of like how they find places. There's a lot of like, they settled there and they called it this thing. But I did want to show off like a little part of it because... 
the namings are incredibly literal, and they're a little bit humorous, and I just enjoy them. They followed the west bank of the river, which they called White River, because they had seen waters that fell out of glaciers, and the color to them seemed wonderful. And they went up along the White River until before them another river was coming from the fells to the north. This they called the North River. They went up along the North River, and soon they found another little river that fell out of a cleft, and so they called it Cleave River. And so they crossed the North River and went back to the White River, and then followed that upwards, and soon blah blah blah... And then they found another river that crossed their way, so they called that the Cross River. Very industrious naming, very simple, easy. They'll figure it out. You know, I'd criticize, but I know that the way we named stuff when we were colonizing this continent is even worse. (laughs) Like, I I think there's literally a river somewhere called Another River because the people making the maps are getting tired of it. That's amazing. It's ridiculous. They should have just asked the people that lived there, what's that river called? And then they'd have a real name. True enough. Or they would just get another, like, Avon River. Yeah, that's true. So anyway, world builders, if you feel like you can't come up with names, don't worry. The place names in real life can be even simpler than you can possibly imagine. So don't feel bad for calling a place, like, Blue River or something. It's totally realistic. Also, according to Wikipedia, another river is in Alaska. Is it really? That checks out. We have three million lakes and counting, so... It is in... Kenai Peninsula Borough, wherever that is. Oh, the Kenai Peninsula. Yeah. At least you know what that means. Mm -hmm. Great fishing there. Oh. All right. So they start setting up their household. Scotland Grimm was a good shipwright, and westwards of Myrar was no lack of driftwood. He had buildings set up on Swan Ness and had another house there. This he made a starting point for seal fishing, seal hunting, and egg gathering. All of these, there were plenty of provisions and many pieces of driftwood to bring to him. I like that egg gathering is an ongoing motif. It is. We talked about that in the last episode. I love, I love that. Whales often also came in there and they were hunted and shot. All such creatures were then tame on the hunting ground and they were unused to man. This third house he had on the western Myrar. And this was even a better place to look for driftwood. I'm a little disturbed by the way they're like, oh yeah, (laughs) those stupid trusting whales. (laughs) They were so friendly. So we killed them. I mean, it would be unusual, I think, but also it's really sad. It's just the way it's phrased (laughs) makes me feel bad for them. That makes sense. So those of you who are a little bit confused about the emphasis on driftwood here, Iceland does not have that many trees, so building... To be fair, it did when the Norse found it. Yes, but it's been it's been a little while since then. Yeah, we're a little past that, and most of the trees have been cut yes, down. Yes, so it's important to have wood to, you know, have fuel and build homes and so on and so forth. So that's where this is coming from. The seal fishing and whales and egg gathering, I also want to bring up, not only because this is akin to the Nordic countries, but also to native Alaskan tribes and the native tribes of Russia and that area, Siberia. There are not that many resources out there. And if you're looking for kind of an interesting world building motif or something more interesting to bring in than like, oh, yes, you hunt a deer in the woods. If your party is on a coastal region or something like that, then 
having seal hunting egg gathering, that's a very, very easy thing to bring in that is unique. Also, puffins lay eggs, which you can eat. The yolk is green and it tastes sort of fishy. I literally just posted a Twitter post about your puffin discussion from the previous ale episode. Oh no! (laughs) Did I talk about puffins? I don't remember. It was at this point that my computer was attacked by gremlins, or possibly puffins. Luckily, I was able to save everything I'd recorded so far, and after some 15 minutes of confusion, we managed to get everything up and running again. What I was saying was, I had just posted something about your puffin discussion from the last AL episode on Twitter, right before we started recording this one, and... To answer the question that you were halfway through before we started having technical problems, yes, you did talk about puffins, and not only did you talk about puffins, you did a puffin impression. Oh, I did! <laughs> the, they sound like the chainsaws, yeah. That is what you said. That, yes, I'm still correct. <laughs> anyway, puffins are cool birds. So, yes. Also, if you're writing a fantasy, like, Thing, either either a novel or a D&D session where the characters go egg gathering in an arctic uh, location. I have two words for you. Dire puffins. What about like puffin mounts? Ooh. I Like chocobos. chocobos. Like chocobos! I don't know if you say that. I've never actually played those games, but I'm familiar. It's Final Fantasy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't played it either. I've watched I've watched my partner play though. They're very cute. Anyway, egg gathering, puffins, you were talking about... Yes, Scott Legrim is setting up his household. Yes. So at this point, he's got three houses. They apparently have cattle, and they also have sheep, and they find that Iceland is so nice that they can just let the sheep roam. They don't have to be brought down from the mountains because it's, well, the hills, because it's so nice there. Oh, I was hoping you'd have more to say about subsistence in an Arctic environment. Well, let's see. Although that is a nice bit of flavor with the sheep. Yeah. You could use that too. Yes, very much. I don't actually have any more. I mean, I can talk about Arctic subsistence living, but... I mean, it's 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 fascinating, <laughs> but I feel like that's probably... Like, if you're just... If you can't connect it back to the text, then we may be going off topic. I will say that the Arctic subsistence lifestyle relies very heavily on proteins and fats as opposed to grains. And so... That includes a lot of very healthy fats, like the kind that you find in eggs and fish, and whale especially, so that the Arctic people's biology, particularly indigenous peoples, they not only take on more weight easily, because that helps keep you warm, but they can better digest fats than, for instance, white people or uh, African-Americans can, or Africans in general, people who live closer to the equator, simply because the diet and needs of the environment changed our genetics. So, fun facts there. That is a fun fact. Yeah. All right. So, back over in Norway, we're switching perspectives again. King Harold Fairhair took for his own all the lands that Cvedolf and Scotlegrim had left behind, and he sought diligently anyone who had been counsel or confidence of Scotlegrim or his family. So anyone who's related to them, he just f***s up. Oh, that's not... I mean, I guess that's a very regal thing to do, honestly. Yeah. 
And so far, stretch the enmity of the king against father and son that he bore hatred against their kith and kin, and any that he knew had been their dear friends. Good use of the term kith and kin. I think so. Well done, our translator. We get this little uh, interim of what the king doing, and then we jump back to Scott Legrim. Scott Legrim was a good ironsmith, and in winter he wrought much red iron ore. He had a smithy set up some way out from Borg, which I think is a great place name close by the sea. He could find no stone in the woods there so hard or so smooth that he thought was good for hammering on, for there are no beach pebbles and the shore is all fine sand. And one evening when the others were gone to sleep, Scott Legrim went out to the sea and pushed out in an eight-oared boat that he had and rowed to the Midfirth Islands. He dropped anchor- Hold on, hold on, hold on. What was that about pebbles? There are no, like, beach pebbles. There's no, like, big stones. It's not a rocky beach. It's all sand. What does he need the rocks for? For his smithing work. Oh, for his... Yes. Wait, no, that doesn't help at all. He needs an anvil. What do you do with it? Oh, it's an anvil. Okay. And so if if all your stones turn into sand, it's not a very good anvil. You need something hard. So he stepped overboard and dove down to the bottom in this little section of islands, and he brought up a large stone and lifted it into the boat. Then he climbed into the boat and rowed back to land, carried the stone to the smithy, and set it down, and thenceforth he hammered on it. That stone lies there still, and much slag beside it, and the marks of the hammering may be seen on its face, and it is a surf-worn boulder, unlike the other stones that are there. Four men nowadays could not lift it. Scatlegram worked hard at smithying, but his house carls grumbled at it, and thought about it over early rising. Like, the, he, they don't like that he's doing it so early. That, or they think about it when they get up in the morning because they're annoyed. For some reason. Yeah. yeah. I like the, like, the, yes, you can still see the stone, the stone that Scott the Grim pulled up from the ocean floor, mm-hmm. and it's so large that you need four men to lift it now, but, like, you can see it was used as an anvil. There's slag around it. It definitely looks Not like more the like other ocean... stones. Yeah. I like that. I like it. That's why I included it. It's one of those where, yeah. like, I could have skipped it, but I really like the lore behind it, so I wanted to keep it in. When you were telling that little story, I was really wanting it to end with, like, and then once he got it up into the boat, crabs came out of it and attacked him. <laughs> but it, went, it was much better than that, and not as, as silly as my thoughts. I mean, you can always adapt the story. That's okay, too. But yes, he does also have a little verse about that one, but I will I will skip that one. It's just a little verse about, like, I found a stone, and it's a good smithing stone. <laughs> like, he's just excited about it. It's cute. <laughs> so, yes. The only time Scott Legrim has been called cute. I don't know. He finds a stone that he likes. I appreciate that as a fellow, like, gremlin creature. I enjoy <laughs> collecting true. really nice stones if I find a good rock, yeah. you know? I have a little bowl full of rocks that I found. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, Scott Legrim, I don't know whether I breezed past this in the last episode or not, but he has a wife named Bira. It's either Bira or Bera. I'm not sure. It's B-E-R-A. So, I'm going to go with Bira because I I think it's that way. Anyway, they tried for many children, but many of them died in youth, which I think is an interesting note that that's included in this saga. Mm-hmm. Yeah, usually it's just skipped over. Like it says, like, and they had two children. And when really they had like a bunch of children, but two of them lasted long enough to be relevant. Right, exactly. Or maybe it's foreshadowed. <laughs> who knows? Then they had a son who was sprinkled with water and named Thorolf. 
They're not- I'm sorry, he was what with what? Yeah, they're not Christian yet, so this is clearly a baptism, except it's like a pagan baptism. Which is not a which thing. Which is not a thing. So I think that they're, like, this is a Christianization of the story, but- Yeah, I mean, I guess we can't definitively say that it's not a thing, because the Christians who wrote these texts were the descendants of the people who wiped out all of the records of, of what pagan belief was really like. Future Mac here. Past Mac has phrased this poorly. The, quote, records, unquote, would mostly be oral tradition and whatnot. So when I say wiped out the records, I mean they suppressed and or refused to record the tradition, which is why the only knowledge we have of it comes from stuff written after most of it was already forgotten. So who knows, maybe pagan baptisms were a thing, but there's no reason for us to believe there were. We don't, yeah, yeah. So anyway, his name is Thorolf. We just had a Thorolf. Yes. Pick a new name. Thorolf was Scott Legrim's brother. Now it's Scott Legrim's son. Now, this is going to get more confusing because as a child, he soon grew to be tall and was fair of countenance. Oh, so he's the new pretty boy. Yes. It was all the talk that he would just be like Thorolf Kvedolf's son, after whom he was named. So, again, this motif of, like, big, beefy, ugly, beast-looking guy has kids, one's really pretty. Can you can you guess what his other son is? I'm gonna assume he's another big, ugly, beastly-looking guy. You would be correct. So, he became incredible, he was beautiful, he had a cheery mood, he came to full strength, blah blah blah. He was a favorite with everyone. And Scott Grimm and his wife had two daughters. One is named Saren, and the other is Thorin. And they were also of great promise, and I like they include the women in this, so that's fun. Yeah. And then they had another son whose name was Aik. Hey, that's the name of the story! You're right! It only took us 31 chapters to get there. <laughs> 31 out of, like, 95. We're one-third of the way through this, and our protagonist has just been born. That's the sagas for you. That is the sagas. So, as he grew up, it was seen that he would be ill-favored like his father with black hair. But when he was three years old, he was as tall and strong as other boys of six or seven. He was soon talkative and word-wise. He was hard to manage when he was at play with the other lads. I think it's interesting that, like, they're, the pretty kid has blonde hair and the ugly kid has dark hair. Like, that's... That's a that's a very like standard issue fairy tale aesthetics kind of thing, and it's interesting how far back that goes. Yeah, it makes me wonder, chicken and egg. Yeah, you know what came first, and you really don't know because this is an old story. This is before the chivalric fairy tales. Yeah. So. Eh. But like maybe not before the oral tradition fairy tales. Exactly. So we don't really like maybe know. it was already a motif, but it hadn't been written down. I figure it had to be a motif. So. Then we get to learn a little bit more about the new Thorolf and his brother. That spring, Yingvar, who's one of the household, went to Borg, and his errand was to bid Skatlegrim to a feast at his house. Or he's a neighbor. Sorry, he went to where? Borg. B-O-R-G. There's dozens of things competing to come out of my mouth right now, but I feel like I don't need to say <laughs> any of them because they've already been filled in by the listeners. I'm sure they have. So yeah, this guy invites Scott Legrim to a feast, and he named the party for his daughter Bera and Thorolf, and... I thought Bera was his wife. No, no, no. Yingvar is Bera's 
father. Oh, okay. And anyone else that Scott Legrim wanted to bring. And Scott Legrim says that he'll come. And Aeok told his father that he wanted to go. Aeok, who is like six. I think three, but yeah. Oh, three. Well, that makes. I so think much he's more three sense. at this point. Three, six. He's somewhere in that range. He's a. He's like a. He's a toddler, and he, so he says to his dad, like, "Hey, Yingvar is also my family, and I want to go." And Scott Legrim says, "You're not coming because you don't know how to behave yourself in company where there's drinking, and you are not easy enough to deal with when you're sober." I'm sorry. Does he already know how easy he is to deal with when he's drunk? Has he checked? That's sort of the implication. This uh, six-year-old child drinking. Also, I'm putting up the baby gate, so you can't come anyway yeah. because you haven't figured out how to get over it. Exactly. Like, the, this is so weird. This is Kukolan levels of, like, you are a literal child. Like, why are you doing this? Precocious child. Yeah, if you remember Kukolan's childhood deeds and, like, the weirdness of him being seven and, like, beating up all these other boys. Oh, at, yeah. Like, you know. Didn't he, like, murder 50 people yes. in his childhood? <laughs> yes, he did. So that is also a motif of these heroes. So remember that because Kukulin and Aeok would be either best pals or worst enemies. I think they'd be frenemies. I think they would. So Scott Legrim goes off to this party and Aeok is mad. So he went out of the yard and found a draft horse, gets on its back, and rode after them. How? I have no idea. Draft horses are bigger than normal horses. Yeah, but Aik is also bigger than... he He's as big as a seven-year-old. I mean, still. <laughs> that sounds like a challenge. So he goes over the woods and follows his dad and their riding party and goes in. He's, he's a little bit late, but he goes in and Yingvar sees him and receives him joyfully. And he's like, why are you here so late? And why aren't you chaperoned? <laughs> Where's your babysitter? Aik rats his dad out, and Yingvar's like, oh, whatever, come sit by me, grandson. And so Yingvar and Aik sit opposite Scott Legrim and Thorolf. And Aik decides that he's gonna say his own little poem, and it goes as follows. Hasting I came to the hearth fire of Yingvar, right fain to so find him, him who on heroes bestoweth gold that the heather worm guardeth. I think heather worm is a dragon. Yeah, I think so. I love that. Because that's like a serpent in the heather. Yeah, exactly. You of the snake's shining treasure are always a generous giver. You give willingly. And will not then I of three winters. I hate this phrasing of this song. Anyway, he's saying, you will not find a better songsmith than me, even though I'm only three years old. I mean, that's not bad. And the snake treasure thing does support the dragon hypothesis. It does. So Yingvar's like, wow, what a wonderful poem. And thanks Aeok for it. And on the next day, as a reward for this poem, he gives this kid three sea snail shells and a duck's egg. That's honestly a good gift for Because he's three. And the next day, Aik recites a poem about that. So point being, Aik is this like horrible little menace of a child, but he recites good poetry. Yes. And then he goes home with his dad. This character will not change for the next 70 years of his <laughs> He really won't. Now, 
In this next section, we're introduced to a new guy, a lord named Bjorn. It will not seem relevant why he's a part of this story for a little while, but we'll get there eventually, so bear with us here. Bjorn was a great traveler, sometimes freebooting, pirating, viking, and sometimes going on actual merchant voyages. Bjorn made his suit and asked Thora to wife, but Thorbeer refused his offer. Oh yes, I think, I believe we time skipped here. Hang on. Nope, this is a different Thorbeer. If you'll remember, pull back with me to the moment when Scott Ligrim and Kvedolf left for Iceland. And we right. brought up that guy, Thorbeer Hroaldsson, who's best friends with Scott Ligrim. Yes, he was the pretty guy. Yes, he's the pretty guy. So, pretty Thorir is now rejecting marriage to his daughter. He's like, no, Bjorn, you can't marry this chick. You can't marry my daughter. But that autumn, Bjorn went with men and came to Thorir's home when he was not there. He took Thora away and took her home to Aurland. And this is all back in Norway. And they were there for the winter, and Bjorn is like, I'm not going to wed you guys. Like, I'm not going to bless this marriage. And Brynjolf, his father, did not like what Bjorn had done and thought there was great dishonor because he had a long friendship with Thorir. This is just all kinds of family so drama much. that has nothing to do with the main I topic. know, and it does eventually, which is why I have to include it. But it's so hard to try and explain otherwise. This is the problem with the sagas. Like, I love it. Because it's like, new episode, new characters, and you're like, what? what's happening in Iceland? We don't know. And it also relies on you being able to remember something from like half a saga. I ago. know. Yeah, and like we're, we're generations down anyway. Because like, like these people's grandkids or something are going to come back in and be important later, and the author will just assume you remember Exactly. Them. So, yes, Bjorn, you're trying to hold a wedding here without the leave of her brother, Da, 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 da. Brynjolf sent men to Thorir to offer atonement and redress from what Bjorn had done, which is the correct move. Thorir bade Brynjolf send Thora home and rejected any kind of atonement, which, like, I get it. Like, bring my sister back. Like, you can't make up for this with money. I don't bless this marriage. But Bjorn would not let her go, even though Brynjolf begged for it, and so winter wore on. But when spring came, then Brynjolf and Bjorn were talking of these matters, and Brynjolf asked Bjorn what he meant to do. And Bjorn said that he should leave the land. Most of my mind, is it, that I should go freebooting. And Brynjolf is like, no, I am not giving you a ship to go viking, you should actually be a merchant and just trade. First, you can't, like... <laughs> it's not as glamorous. You stole this woman, now you want to go Viking. It's not going to work. I want to steal more women. <laughs> and so Bjorn's like, fine, I'll go be a merchant. And so he made ready for his voyage, but was some time about it. So he took his time. And then when he was ready, he embarked. And they went to the homestead to his mother's bower, and she was sitting there with many women. Thora was there. Bjorn said Thora must go with him, and they led her away. But his mother bade the women not dare to let them know what was going on. Brynjolf would be in a sad way if he knew it, and this would bring great mischief between father and son. But Thora's clothes and trinkets were all laid ready at hand, and Bjorn and his men took all with them. So here's basically what they did. Yes, please summarize. Yes. Bjorn is like, fine, dad, I'll go be a merchant. I won't go Viking. He takes his ship, goes to like his mom's estate because all these guys have multiple houses. 
because these are incredibly rich Viking lords. And his would-be wife, fiance, girlfriend, whatever, is there. And he's like, hey. And she's Thorir's daughter and his and her father has not approved the match. He's, she's Thorir's sister, not father. Their, sister. their father's out of the picture. Yeah. And so he's like, babe, you got to come get in the boat with me. Like, bring your dowry, all that stuff. We're going to Iceland. And mom's like, okay, go. But we won't tell anyone. This is our secret. So she's helping them elope to Iceland is essentially what's going on. And apparently Thora is like a willing participant in this, because if she had wanted to go back, I think they would have forcibly made it happen. Hold on. Hold on. Her name is Thora. Yes. And her brother's name is Thoria. Yes. No wonder I keep getting confused. (laughs) Yeah, it's not not very easy. It also doesn't help that you've got Brynjolf and you've got his son Bjorn. Like you had to pick all the B letters. Well, Bjorn's easy to remember because I just imagine a bear in a vest. That's a good idea. Yep. For the listeners, Bjorn literally is just Old Norse for bear. Yeah. The man is literally named bear. bear. So anyway, Bjorn takes his girlfriend. They elope. Mom's like, I'm going to help you with this plot. You don't need a wedding, whatever. And they go to Iceland. Now, a little before winter, there came a ship from the Orkneys. And it held messengers of King Harold with an errand sent to Earl Sigurd that the king would have Bjorn slain wherever he might be found. Are we supposed to know why? Probably for some Viking that he did. Like, he was a freebooter, so maybe he maybe he took something of Harold's. Who knows? I thought he was a merchant. Well. <laughs> a legitimate businessman. <laughs> he says he is. Can you trust anything out of his mouth? So anyway. Well, he mostly just says, Because <laughs> he's a beer. Anyway, so King Harold sends this out to the Southern Isles and even to Dublin, which I think is cool that, that his realm yeah. is that big. Bjorn heard these tidings and he's like, oh, shit, now I'm outlawed in Norway. And reaching the Shetland Isles, Bjorn had his wedding with Thora and they stayed the winter there before popping off to Iceland in totality. I'm not sure that Harold's realm actually extends to the various islands and to Dublin, but I bet there are people in the islands and in Dublin who would be willing to do Harold's dirty work for the hopes of a reward. True. Very true. It's a soft power thing, not an actual power thing. That's true. The Vikings did like invade and, and occupy Dublin, though. Yeah, but I don't think it was ever under the direct control of Norway. Not in the not in the regal sense, no, I don't think so. So they end up at Borg, and who do we know is at Borg? Scott Lagroon. Locutus. Oh lord. <laughs> no! Scott Lagroon. Oh, right. Right. Uh, let's see. Bjorn at once remembered who he was, and he went to meet with Scott Lagroon, and they talked together, and Scott Lagroon's like, who are you? Did he forget who he was? Did he have amnesia? I think it was more like, oh yeah, you're that guy who was also outlawed. I've heard about oh, you. Oh, he remembered who Scott Legrim was. Okay, I thought he was remembering like, oh right, I'm Bjorn. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't put it past him. He seems the himbo type. He's making very many bad decisions. Okay, so it's more like he recognizes the name. Yes. And is, okay, okay, okay. I'm, I'm caught up. Okay, okay. So, 
Bjorn names who he is and his father, and Skatlegrim knows Brynjolf, and so he offers Bjorn his help, because he doesn't realize that there's a feud between father and son. He thinks that all is hunky-dory in Iceland. So Bjorn's like, yeah, I'll accept your help. This is great. So Skatlegrim asked what others there were in the ship, and Bjorn said, there's Thora, Proeld's daughter, sister of Lord Thorvir. And Skatlegrim was glad about that because he said it was his duty to give the sister of Thorvir, which is his foster brother, help as she needed. And he invited them both into the house. And like, you know, they're going to set up, you know, their little summer camps. They set up their little booths, which is a very common Icelandic thing. Do you want to explain what booths are? Okay, so they're kind of a temporary shelter. Uh, the ones they use at the All Thing, which is like the Icelandic kind of parliament setup, are stone walls, sometimes cut into the side of a hill or something, but stone walls. Walls of turf and or stone would be more accurate, past Mac. Uh, that you just leave up all the time, and then you spread a cloth over them as a roof when you want to actually live in them. Yep. It just means like a, a sort of temporary shelter. Yeah, like a tent, but a little bit more. It's like, it's what they do over the, the ship as well. It's the same sort of tent yeah. system. So now let me just line this up for you, because there's a lot of political stuff going on here that is otherwise difficult to keep track of. Yeah. Also, isn't Borg in Norway? So they're both in Norway, despite both being outlaws from Norway. No, Borg is in Iceland. Borg is in Iceland. There's also a Borg in Norway, I'm pretty sure. There probably is. But this is this is specifically Scotlagrim's Borg in Iceland. Okay. So we've got Scotlagrim's foster brother, Thorir. This is his, essentially, foster sister. His foster sister has just shown up with this guy that she's married to. And the guy that she's married to is the son of one of Scott Legrim's other best friends. So we've got two BFFs of Scott Legrim, mm -hmm. whose either sister or son have eloped and haven't told Scott Legrim that they're actually like divorced from their families. Gotcha. So this is a very, very bad setup waiting to happen. So Scalagrim's like, this is great! My extended family has come to stay. This is wonderful. And no, 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 no. That's not what's actually going on. Because if Thorir or Brynjolf, like, figure out what's going on, it's going to look like Scalagrim betrayed them. So that's the setup here. Also, I've made discoveries on Google that not only there is there a Borg in Iceland, there's a hotel Borg in Iceland. Oh, plan your Which you could vacation. stay at tomorrow night for $405, and it is a four-minute walk from the Icelandic Penis Museum. To be fair, that is a great museum. <laughs> 10 out of 10. I know, you have mentioned it before. I actually got to visit. It was really, really cool. It was really fun. Um, great blue whales actually have massive... I mean, that just sounds reasonable. They're, you know, proportions. True. I just didn't, like, I didn't realize. <laughs> like, you're standing next to it and you're like, oh, but anyway, it's a very fun museum. It's actually very educational. I would highly encourage going if you're ever in Iceland. It's definitely worth the admission fee. But anyway, that's our setup. That's where we're at. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about a different kind of. Yes, indeed. So, in the autumn, when ships had come to Iceland from Norway, and again, this sort of has to do with, like, seasonal passages, things like that, 
The report came over how Bjorn had run away with Thora without the consent of her kin, and the king had made him an outlaw. When Skalagrim learned this, he called Bjorn to him and asked how it had been with his marriage, and had it really been made without the consent of the family? Which is not to say without Thora's consent, this is just without the family's, like, blessing. Yeah, it's it's actually a recurring theme in the Icelandic sagas that you need both the consent of the woman and of her family. Yes. And if you're missing one of those, it almost always goes wrong. Yep. Because we see marriages that are lacking the consent of the family, and we see marriages that have the family's consent, but not the woman herself, and it always goes wrong. Yep. And Scott Legrim is reasonably upset about this, and is like, hey, I never looked for this in the son of Brynjolf. Like, this is out of character for his son. What What's actually going on here? I'm a bear. <laughs> He's just a himbo. He's just a big bear, like, with a shirt on. He's like, hey... <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't understand your human ways. <laughs> and Bjorn says, you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> he says, you can't rebuke me for this. I didn't say anything that you didn't ask, okay? But if you want me to own up to it, it's true. That is also standard in the sagas, by the way, is people answering exactly only the questions you ask. Yep. So he's like, you're not my dad. Also, yeah, I did do it. F*** you. <laughs> and Scott Grimm gets really angry about this. And he's like, how dare you come into my house? Don't you know that I have a really good friendship with Thorir? And Bjorn answered, yeah, I knew that you were foster brothers, but I sought your house because I was driven ashore here. And like, why would I avoid you? You're supposed to be a family friend. And it's not your job to tell me what my fate is, but I hope for, like, some kind of favor from you since I'm here anyway. I think it kind of is his job. He's been telling a lot of people what their fate is. That's true. He's also been the one dealing their fate, so. Yeah. And so was his father. Like, that's just, that's their thing. Yeah, that's true. So anyway, Bjorn's kind of doing this, like, sad, pleading, like, you can't tell me what to do, whatever thing. And Thorolf and this is Thorolf, Scatlegrim's son, comes forward and pleads on Bjorn's behalf. Like, hey, like, chill, dad. It's fine. And so Scatlegrim was appeased, and Thorolf and Bjorn got his way. And then we have- For real? I was totally expecting Scatlegrim to kill that guy. No, no, the drama continues. But we do have the most homoerotic line of this entire saga, which is- Take Bjorn, and he's saying this to his son, take Bjorn and deal with him as may best prove your manhood. Ooh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and like, I get he's just saying, like, deal with him in a way you think is honorable, but the phrasing of this line is just rough. Yeah, yeah. Initially, I thought the line was just, take Bjorn, and I'm like, I feel like you're kind of reaching there, Zoe, <laughs> like you're reading into that. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. Prove your manhood, my son, with this guy that, you know, has come into our house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that summer, Thora has a kid, and her name is Asgard, and Vera got a woman to look after the girl. They're settling down, blah, blah, blah. Bjorn stayed for the winter with Scott Grimm, and Thorolf struck up a friendship with him. And when spring came, Thorolf had a talk with his father and asked, kind of, what to do with Bjorn. And Grimm asked Thorolf what Bjorn wanted to do, basically. And Thorolf says, well, I think Bjorn would go to Norway if he could go home in peace. 
so why don't I go to Norway and ask for atonement on his behalf? Because, you know, we're buddies now. Should you maybe check with Bjorn first? I mean, I figure Bjorn would want to, like, not be stuck in Iceland forever, but who knows? I know, I'm just saying, like, hey, Thorolf, what do you think Bjorn wants to do? (laughs) Like, I don't know, why are you asking me? I guess I'll go on a dangerous sea voyage. Yeah, I mean, I figure Skatligrim doesn't want to even see Bjorn at this point. You should still loop him into the conversation somehow. True, but since when have Viking men ever done that? Well, it would be sensible, so of course they wouldn't. Precisely. So, Scott Legrim's like, alright, fine, I give you, you know, my blessing. So they have tokens, and... They have tokens? Like, tokens for, for Thorir to offer in peace. Tokens of friendship. Oh, like little gifts? Yes. Or like, or or is this, okay. Not, not like Chuck E. Cheese tokens. I, I was split between, are we talking about game tokens, or are we talking about, like, signet rings? <laughs> No, they don't really use signet rings, I don't think. Anyway, so they got, they've well, that's got gifts. I was confused. Yes, they've got gifts for him. And Thorir took atonement for Bjorn because he saw that it had come to this now that Bjorn had nothing to fear. Thus, Brynjolf got atonement and accepted Bjorn and Skatligrim's messengers abode or lived with Thorir for the winter. That's, that's, that's a very sudden resolution. Yes. Well, I skipped a little bit of it. Basically, oh, okay. Brynjolf is like, I'm gonna do it! He's like over-enthusiastic about this. About forgiving him? About, like, getting atonement for him, yeah. 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 He's like, this is my best friend! And when Bjorn was ready for going, then Beera said that she would fain have Asgard left behind. And then Bjorn accepted, and the girl was left behind. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yes, go. They're going back to Norway. And his wife is like, I would love to go back to my family. However, I want to abandon our daughter. Yes, that is exactly what's happening. Why? Um, that is not ever stated. Maybe she's still an infant and it would be dangerous and therefore it would be safer. Or maybe she's a really shitty mom. Well, we have equal amounts of evidence for both. Take your pick. Your headcanon <laughs> is just as valid. She was born half bear and they just didn't <laughs> want to take that shame back. Oh, no. Thereafter, Thorir and Bjorn were good brothers-in-law and friends. Yes, that makes sense. And Bjorn stayed at home with Brynjolf and Thorir was also there. And so this has all been like sorted, tied up in a neat little bow, and poor Asgard is, is left behind. Does it really say, and Thorir was also there, or was that your son? Uh, Thorwolf also being there in much favor with father and son. I like your version better. <laughs> Thorolf was also there. It's chill. So the king is now wintering, and the king was beginning to age and fail in strength, but many of his sons had come to vigor in their prime. And his son Eric, who is also named Bloodaxe. We have now gone through another moment where I wish you could see the gestures that Zoe makes, because she totally did like a bodybuilder stance when she said vigor. 100%. But also, Eric Bloodaxe, common saga character. An excellent name. Excellent, excellent name. He was being fostered with our own Thorir. This is the same Thorir we had just talked about. And the king loved Eric above all his sons, even though he's like one of the younger sons. And Thorir was on the most intimate terms with the king. Which, again, weirdly homoerotic phrasing. Thank you, translator. Yes. Yes. Oh, here's a good detail that I just wanted to include. I highlighted it just because it's fun. 
The ship that they had taken pre-booting, that is to say Bjorn and Thorolf, was painted above the sea line and was very beautiful. Oh, that's Which nice. I didn't know we actually like had evidence for them painting their ships. Oh, hey, yeah. But apparently we do. Here's some firsthand textual evidence that it was beautifully painted above the sea line. Because you don't want to have it like the water, you know, and barnacles all over it. But above the sea line, they painted their ships, which I think mm-hmm. is really cool. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. So yes, as it happened one day, Thorolf and Bjorn were going down to their ship and they saw that Eric the king's son was there. And he went over to the ship and then onto the land and he's like staring at the ship. He's like, this is the coolest ship I've ever seen. How come my dad didn't get me a ship like this? This is amazing. It's like the coolest new Bugatti or something. And Bjorn says to Thorolf, the king's son is like really liking our ride. Do you want to give it to him as a present? Because... It'll help us in the king's favor if we give him, you know, the ship. And I've heard it said that the king bears you a real heavy grudge, you know, because of your dad. And Thorolf's like, yeah, that's a great idea. Like, I kind of want to get in with the king. And so they went down to the ship where Eric is. And Thorolf's like, ah, yes, Eric, how do you like our, how do you like our boat? And Eric says, it's a, it's a perfect beauty, super hot, love your boat. And Thorolf says, well, I'll give it to you, like, as a present. And Eric says, amazing, thank you so much, but it's poor payment on my part if I don't offer you anything. So, like, be one of my foster brothers, be kin to me. What it actually says is, I'm offering you my friendship, but that doesn't carry the weight to us Mm -hmm. that it would to them. So this, again, is that kind of foster brother relationship of like, hey, if you ever need my help, you know, ride or die, I'll be there. Yeah, a lot of the times when they talk about friendship in the sagas, it's more of a formal alliance. Like, it's not just some guy you go down to the pub with. It's like, you guys, you're linked. Yeah, exactly. And they're very serious about it, which often comes off kind of weird when you're reading it in translation. Exactly. Which is, again, why Scott LeGrim was so angry that he's hosting a guy that his foster brother, Thorir, had ousted from his family, essentially. Thorolf said that he thought the ship was far overpaid in kind. So he's like, that's that's more than enough in return. And again, this is where I'm going to bring up the, the idea of economy of honor. You can exchange goods and services for honor and alliances. And that has massive, massive weight that we don't carry as much today. And I'm pretty sure that this is going to end up being a good deal because Eric is someone you want an alliance with. Absolutely. Not only is he the next king of Norway, but, and I don't remember if this comes up in this saga or not, but he is married to one of my favorite saga characters, Gunhild, witch queen of Norway. Hell yeah, we love Gunhild. She is the best. Yeah, we get a lot of Gunhild stuff later. Yes! Thorolf has a good relationship with her. Eik does not and we'll get into that a little bit later but anyway they separated they're good friends blah 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 and Bjorn and Thorolf then go to Thorweir and ask like hey do you actually think that there's a heavy grudge against me Thorolf and Thor's like yeah I I think there actually is like he hates you because of your dad and your uncle presumably yeah and your uncle whom you look exactly like (laughs) like weirdly similar it's uncanny and Bjorn says, well, okay, we should go and plead on your behalf. And in the end, it was promised that Thorir would go to the king and try and sway the king to not hate 
Thorolf just because of Scott the Grim. And then Thorir spoke soft words to the king. And the king replies that they're all overbearing men who know no measure, and I don't want to have to deal with them. And then Eric steps up and says, Hey, Dad, I've made friends with Thorolf. He's given me a dope new ride, and I like him. And I've also promised kinship to him. And he basically pleads his case. And so in the end, it was, you know, promised that Thorolf would not be killed on sight, essentially. So, Well, that's nice. They get that far. But the king says, he's not allowed in my presence. I don't want to see him. I don't want to deal with him. But, like, I won't kill him. He's not outlawed in Norway. So King Harold does make one of these fated predictions, just like Kvadolf did. This is sort of like an old wise man sort of thing. And he says, you, Eric, make him as close a friend as you want. But one of two things will happen. That either they'll be softer and kinder, like this family will be softer and kinder to you. Or you're going to rue this day and you're going to suffer real bad from this. And that's what I think is going to happen. And then we jump back to Thorolf. And he, now that he's been in Norway, wants to go back to see his dad in Iceland because he'd been gone so long. He goes to Eric, who is now king, King Eric, because Harold has passed. And at their parting... Wait, weren't we just talking to Harold? Yes, we time skipped. Sorry, I time okay. skipped. Yes, I did skip an entire chapter because it's just... What is actually in this chapter? <laughs> ah, yes, he marries Gunhild. The prettiest woman ever, and she has magic. I'm sorry, you mean Gunhild, Witch Queen of Norway? Yes, the Witch Queen. And then we also <laughs> learn that Thora dies, and Bjorn takes another wife who they also name Gunhild. That's not confusing at all. Yeah, we time skip a little bit. There's a guy named Thorgir, and he's a, quote, devoted heathen worshiper. Nice, good for him. Good for him. So, yes. Sticking to his guns. I mean, I don't think it would be that rough in their day. But yeah, he's, he's, no, he's really No, we're passionate. still like a good hundred years before Iceland converts. Yes. Seventy years. But Norway converted a little early. Yes, that's true. So anyway, now Eric is king. And he gives Thorolf an axe, which is supposed to be a present for Scotlagrim. And the axe was snag-horned, large, gold-mounted. The hilt was overlaid with silver, and it was most valuable and costly. And when he came home, he gave Scotlagrim King Eric's greeting and delivered the axe. Scotlagrim took the axe and held it up, looked at it a while, but said nothing. And he fixed it up by his seat. Now remember, dear listeners, Scotlagrim is a smith. He can mm. tell when a weapon has been crafted finely. And it chanced one day in autumn that Scotlagrim had several oxen driven home which he meant to slaughter. Two of these he led under the house wall and placed them with their heads crossing. He took a large flat stone and pushed it under their necks. Then he went near with the axe, the king's gift, and hewed the oxen both at once, and he took off the heads of the oxen too. But the axe was smote on the stone so that the mouth, or like the head of the axe, broke and was rent all through the tempered steel. Scotlagrim looked at the edge, said nothing, but went into the fire hall and mounted it to the wall beam and thrust the axe up among the rafters above the door, and it lay in the smoke all winter. And then there's a brief interlude where Thoros like, I want to go abroad in the summer. And Scotlagrim says, no, you should be home. You've gotten great honor by travel. And there's a saying, many fairings, many fortunes. 
and you should take your share in the property as you think will make a great man. So he's like, you know, don't go off, start tending to households, lands, you know, establish yourself. And Thorolf said he wanted to make one more journey because he has an urgent errand. And when I next come back, I shall settle here and I should also bring Asgard and take her to her father. I'm glad they remember she exists. Yes, and it's cool that she's mentioned. I think that's really fun. So Scotligrim's like, fine, have it as you will. But before Thorolf left Borg, Scotligrim went and took down from the rafters the axe and came out with it. The haft was now black with smoke and the blade rusted. Scotligrim looked at the axe edge and he handed it to Thorolf, reciting this stave. The fierce wound wolf's tooth edge, that is to say, the axe, has not just a few flaws. This is an axe all deceitful, a wood that is cleverly weak. Begone, worthless weapon, with shaft smoke begrimed. A prince ill beseemed, it such a present to send. So he's saying that this was a poor gift. Like it looked really pretty on the outside, but it's not actually worth anything. And the smoke has revealed using the axe. And then the smoke has also revealed its ill work. Do you think that might be a metaphor for something? You know, I think it might be. (laughs) But will Thorolf learn this? Let's find out. Again, skipping a couple chapters, but there is a cool name that I just want to mention. There's a guy named Kettle Blund. Blund? Blund. Kettle, yeah. Not like K-E-T-I-L. No, Kettle, as in K-E-T-T-L-E. Oh. Kettle Blund. Oh, that is a weird Which is like, I was thinking K-E-T-I-L, because no. I'm like, I've seen that before. And I was uh-uh. like, Blund. Which I think is a mistranslation. Like, I think they just spelled it wrong in the translation. But I love it, because, like, the only thing I can think of is, like, a teapot merchant. Yeah. I really like it. Future Mac here. I checked. Zoe is right. In the original, it is spelled K-E-T-I-L, like the Icelandic name we've seen before. I don't know why the translator decided to render it as kettle, like a tea kettle, this time. So anyway, skipping a couple chapters, and then we get to of Aik and Scotlagrim's games, and we get to learn a little bit more about Aik. Scotlagrim took much pleasure in trials of strength and games. He liked to talk about it all. Ball play was then a common game. Plenty of strong men were in this neighborhood, but not one of them was as strong as Scotlagrim, even though he was somewhat stricken in his years. There was a man named Thord, son of Grani at Granested, who was of great promise and he was very young, and he was very fond of Aeak, Scotlagrim's son. Aeak was often engaged in wrestling, and he was headstrong and hot-tempered, but all had the sense to teach their sons to give way to Aeok. So he's like, don't f*** with this kid. Don't get hurt. That kid has issues. Yeah. Don't mess, don't with, mess him. with him. A game of ball was held one day in White Riverdale in early winter, to which many people gathered. And many of Scotligram's household went to the game. Chief among them was Thord. Aeok asked Thord to let him go to the game as he was in his seventh winter. That is, he's seven years old, and they're like, yeah, you can come to the game. Sure, why not? They made up sides for the play, so two teams. We know that if you don't invite him, he's just going to come anyway. Yeah, that's annoying And then say kid. a poem about it. And then many small boys had also come, and they made a game for themselves. So, like, the adults get to play a game, and the kids get to play a game. And Aik was matched to play against a boy named Grim, son of Heg. 
and Grimm was 10 or 11 and strong for his age. But when they played together, Aeok got the worst of it, and Grimm made all he could of his advantage. And Aeok got angry and lifted up the bat and struck Grimm, whereupon Grimm seized him and threw him down with a heavy fall and handled him rather roughly and said he would thrash him if he did not behave. But when Aeok got to his feet, he went out of the game and the boys hooted at him. So, like, Aeok's a sore loser, kind of. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, I I know it's a little rough and maybe not the best way for children to interact, but, like, this would be a decent lesson if Ale was like, okay, I won't behave like that anymore. That didn't work. Yeah. I've learned something. You would think this is a great learning opportunity for this kid, but instead he goes to his Maybe buddy. don't hit people with bats. Yeah, like, maybe not. So Aeot goes to his friend Thord, and Thord's like, ooh, let's get revenge, because, you know, they're seven. Let's hit him with more bats. <sighs> if only it were that easy. I know, I do actually remember this one. <laughs> Content warning, violence against children. If you don't want to hear that, skip ahead about 45 seconds. He gave Aeok a halberd he'd been carrying. They went to where the boys' game was, and Grimm had now got the ball and was running away with it and the other boys after him. So this is like early rugby. And Aeok bounded upon Grimm and drove the axe into his head so that it pierced his brain. After this, Aeok and Thord went to their own people. And the Myra men, that's like, I guess, the other group who had come, grabbed all of their weapons, obviously, because one of their kids has just been killed. Yeah, as you would. Everything split up, but then now there's like a quarrel between the two of them. And they fought at Lock's feet. And blah, blah, blah. When Aeok came home, Scott Grimm said little about it, but Vera said... <laughs> said, you're a bad seed, kid. <sighs> I wish, but no, his mom's like, you know what? You'd make a great Viking one day, kiddo. I mean, that tracks, but it's probably not the best way to respond when your child has committed murder. Correct. And so that's what she says. She's like, we should give you a boat when you're old enough and you can go out Viking. You're good at violence. <laughs> Let's encourage his hobbies, babe. <laughs> Murder hobbies. And yes, then Aeok makes a little poem about his mom's advice. And when Aeok was 12, he was grown so big that there were but few men that were as large and strong as him who could overcome him in games. And Thord, Grani's son, was then 20. And as the winter wore on, it often chanced that Aeok and Thord matched against Scott Lugrim, because, like, he's the only one who can actually handle them in wrestling. So, again, they play ball, and they were set against Scott Lugrim, and he became weary before them, and they thought that they had the best of it. But as the evening set and the sun went down, it began to go worse with Aeok, and Scott Lugrim then became so strong, he came up. That's that night wolf blood. It is that night wolf blood. So he became so strong, and he caught up Thord and dashed him down so violently that he was all bruised. And then he seized Aeok. Now there was a handmaid of Scotlagrim's named Thorgeter Brach, who had nursed Aeok when he was a child. She was a big woman, as strong as a man, and of magic cunning. And she said, Are you turning into shape strength against your son? And Scotlagrim let Aeok loose, but clutched at her. So there's a kind of an implication here that he kind of goes mad. He goes into like a battle frenzy when he shapeshifts or shape changes. Mm-hmm. And she broke away. She flees. And Scott Legrim 
runs after her and they get up to this headland and she leaps out off of this rock into the water. And so the water there is now called Brakar Sound because she like flung herself off and died. But afterwards, in the evening, when they came home to Borg, Aik was very angry. Scott Grimm and everyone else were at table, but Aik, like doesn't come to dinner. So instead, he goes into the fire hall and up to a man who had been overseeing the work and management of money, and Aik, in revenge, kills him. And then he goes to dinner. An eye for an eye, father. Basically, and it explicitly states that Scott Grimm did not say anything about it, and father and son exchanged no words that entire winter. Well, Scott Grimm is a man of few words. True. So that's not too surprising. But can you imagine living in that house? Yeah, that's going to be tense for the mother. It's going to be tense for everyone for the entire winter. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because they, they've got servants and stuff, yeah. too. It's going to be really bad. And so then, the summer after this, Thorolf comes home, and he learns of all of this. And Aik wants to go out with Thorolf, because he wants to go a Viking. And Scott Grimm said, like, hey, have you talked with Thorolf about what's happened this past winter? And Aik says, no. And Scott Grimm says, you should you should do that first. And when Aik brings this up with Thorolf... That's his resume. It shows how good at violence he is. <laughs> Apparently. So he brings this up to Thorolf and he says, uh, I don't think I want to bring you abroad, because if dad can't manage you here, like, I don't want to deal with you overseas. But I've got a taste for blood, bro. Aik's response is, well, maybe neither of us will go. Which is so stone cold. Yeah, that would make me a little nervous. I'd be like, what the f***? I would just turn around and leave. I'm like, I'm not coming home anymore. My brother's a psychopath. Yeah, th- this is not a healthy place to be. I'm going to find somewhere else uh-uh, to live. I'm, g- I'm going to go back and hang out with, with Bjorn and, and his wife. Like, get me out of here. So in the night, there came a furious gale, and when it was dark, Aik went out to where the ship was, and he cuts asunder all the cables that were on the seaward side, that is the seaside, and... I'm sorry, it's not seaward, it's, it's seaward? Su- yeah, seaward. Boat. <laughs> so he, he cuts all the cables to the boats, and the ships are driven out into the water, and when the men at the docks are aware that the ships are, like, set adrift they jump into the boat but the winds are far too strong for them to do anything about it and so they drift out to sea and eventually like they go get those guys but a gets in major trouble for playing this prank yeah you know it's just one of those old-fashioned property destruction yeah you know and thorolf at this point is so frustrated he's like fine like it's gonna be more of an issue not to bring my brother he might as well come so Thorwolf comes on shipboard and takes the axe that Scott Grimm had given into his hands and casts it overboard. So he's getting rid of this axe. He's not going to deliver. I don't like this metaphor anymore. <laughs> he's like, I'm not going to give this back to the king. I'm just going to chuck it into the water. I'm not going to deal with this. It's fine. Now get one of those Hannibal Lecter masks for my brother. <laughs> yeah, for real. So that's the end of that chapter. And that gets us to chapter 41. Whew. So there we go. That is uh, the next chunk of this saga. There's a lot going on. We we went through several generations here. Yes. Kvedulf is gone now. We get to Thorolf, and now we're at Aeg finally. Mm-hmm. All right, so. What say you? Best dialogue. My favorite bit of dialogue, like it, it actually really struck me as like, 
that's some quality wordsmithing there is when Scott Legrim gives back the axe to Thorolf mm-hmm. and is like, look how this thing is, is pretty but useless. Yep. Yeah. Like he said it good and I did and I said it bad, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Yes, it's a it's a good phrase. The fierce wound wolf's tooth edge has flaws not a few, an axe all deceitful, a wood cleaver weak, begone worthless weapon, with shaft smoke begrimed, a prince ill beseemed it such a present to send. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's a great it's a great phrase. And what's really interesting to me here is that it's not ever really clear, or so far it's not clear whether Eric did this on purpose or whether he just like has an eye for shiny gifts but not anything substantial. Well, I mean, given how he was staring at the painted ship without knowing anything else about it, I think he's just a, a fairly superficial guy. <laughs> I think so. That seems like a an apt conclusion to draw. All right. Altobrast. Best death. For me, it's Halvard. How did Halvard he's die? He's the one who, like, Fatal chucked his axe into his skull and flung him overboard with it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, that's definitely the best. That was amazing. That was a rough one. Yeah. No, that's... I I don't think you'd even see that in a movie. That is dramatic. Yeah, it's very dramatic. Fatal gets a cool death, too, in that, like, it comes from the exhaustion of being a shapeshifter. And I I really like that. And then he floats in the coffin, which is also cool. Which is super cool. So we got two back-to-back deaths here that are pretty yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, those are both really good. Yeah. I'd like to nominate worst deaths for all those ones in the last chapter. <laughs> you don't you don't like the one where Aik just stabs a guy <laughs> in his brain with a halberd? No. <laughs> or when he murders a servant because his dad killed a different servant. Like you wasn't that guy's fault. It wasn't fault. either of their faults. Both of it's so bad. I would not want to work for this family. Yeah, no, very bad. Like, I'll work for either one of the Thorolfs, but not not the rest of the family. Screw that. Like, I mean, I kind of like the, like, taciturn, stay-at-home vibe they have going on, but they're way too free with the violence. Yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. Bestiary. Bestiary. We don't really have any critters, but we did have the allusion to the dragon. Yeah, there was an allusion to the I dragon. I like that one. Okay. What are we going to do with this for D&D? How do we adapt this into a TTRPG? Ooh, coffins floating ashore, especially as a random encounter. Ooh, that's really good. What do you do with a random coffin? I don't know. You just put it there and see what your players make of it. I like that. That's 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 pretty cool. One of the longer campaigns I had, I had a list of non-combat encounters that were almost all just like, I, th- I think it, it was called a wilderness dressing. So it was all just like stuff that's like weird, but kind of in an aesthetic sort of way. Mm-hmm. And that you don't actually have to interact with at all. It's stuff like there are three white ravens on a tree nearby. Like that's it. Make of that what you will. The players got so creative trying to figure out what they were. And I'm like, it's from a D100 table. But now I have to decide what that is. And it becomes like a whole thing. That's amazing. I love that. So I, I, I think the floating coffin could be like one of those. 100%. I will say that if you do use a floating coffin, please have a backstory ready for whoever is in the coffin. Because someone's yeah. going to do speak with dead. Yeah, you got to decide who's in the coffin. Yeah, you got to know. You gotta know. Unless it's empty. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I like it. 
Okay. I definitely love the political intrigue of either for a character or NPCs that you have to deal with or quests of somebody being estranged from their family, but you go to the family friend like, hey, can you help me out? And then they figure out like, oh, you're estranged from the family. I like that, especially for like character backstory purposes, because that could be really, really fun if they're forced to go to that person or they're trying to hide it. It's their secret and something bubbles up and comes out. I think that can be a good time. Yeah, that's a good plot. Also elopement. Always good. Always good. Especially if you're in some way like involved with the NPCs and you have to either help or hinder their elopement. Very good. 10 out of 10. Although be careful with D&D romance across the board. In-game romance does not mean there's any out-of-game romance. I need to say that. Gee, Zoe, are you speaking from personal experience? Because it sounds like you're speaking from personal experience and I kind of want to hear the story. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, let's just say that... uh. We had an all-female party except for one guy, and I believe he asked out every single person in that party. In real life. Like, all the players were women. I mean, did any of them say no. yes? <laughs> they were all gay. <laughs> I was expecting you to say, like, after the first couple, the rest were like, well, if we're the fourth choice, no. But no, that's an even better they were all They were all LGBT, and he knew that, and... Like, he still shot a shot. And the weird part was two of them were dating that that time. So anyway, it was weird. Please, please, please have boundaries about romance in campaigns. Yes. <laughs> Just point Good idea. <laughs> but yeah, elopements are fun. They can cause all kinds of drama. I'm here for political shenanigans in, in D&D. Mm -hmm. What else? I mean... If you're looking for a, a way to describe deaths, this would be really cool. There's a lot of drama and detail here that you can use. Like, if you get the final blow on somebody, use your axe and fling him into the water if you're on a boat. Like, fling him into the air because you're just that good with your axe. Also, the whole shape strength thing. Ooh, I feel like that could really be worked that in. That would be a really good, like, subclass or something. Zoe is taking notes, guys. Yeah, we've got we've got things brewing. We've got things <laughs> brewing. What else? Anything else? I feel like we're missing a ton. Oh, I mean, there's a lot. Little kid ale as an NPC. Like, imagine right. some kid comes up to you and is like, I want to join your adventuring party. I killed my first man at six. That would be wild. Never, ever let anybody play that as a character. I mean... I'm super good at murder, guys. I would find that incredibly infuriating as an actual character. But yes. you do you. I would go crazy. <laughs> uh, what else? Anything else? I think that's most of it. There must be more. There was a lot that happened. There was a lot that happened. But it's basically like Fadolf and... Scott Legrim killed the guys who killed their family, escaped to Norway, set up a household, and then got married, had kids. Not to each other. Yeah. And meanwhile, the whole Bjorn Thora thing went down. They had fled to Iceland, had to resolve that. Then mm -hmm. Prince Eric pops up. Ooh, how about how about the the prince makes friends with the players, but the players are somehow in a bad way with the king. Yes. That's a good also one. Also good. And he just really likes the pretty ship. 
Yeah, you could have the prince heavy handedly hinting that he would like a particular thing the players own in order to earn his friendship. There you go. That's a good one. Also, feel free to blend the characters of Prince Eric Bloodaxe and Prince Eric from The Little Mermaid. They're both himbos. <laughs> Prince Eric in The Little Mermaid is so dumb, but he's so pretty. That's that's kind of his thing, it I think. Thing. I, that was my that and Pocahontas were my favorite Disney movies. That's an interesting choice. I didn't think you watched Disney as a kid. I didn't watch pretty much any of the other ones. Oh, okay. But I also really liked Pocahontas' cliff diving. Okay, yeah, that's cool. I was like, that, right there. I want to do that. And then I just also like mermaids. I liked Lion King and Hercules, personally. Hercules is good. Lion King traumatized me as a child. It's, it, I mean, it is, it's very tragic. It is incredibly, incredibly tragic. I, I couldn't do that one. That was too much for me. Also, separately, Mulan is the best Disney princess. Fight me. She's so cool. <laughs> Ugh, okay, okay. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over? Echoes in, in modern culture. <laughs> okay. Um, hmm. I feel like some of the place names. The place names are still there. These are real places you can go visit. Like one of the things I really want to do is like a Viking tour. Where I just go go around to where all these old places were. I think they do that. They do one for um, Snorri Sturluson's house. Yeah. I went there. That's really cool. But I mean, I'm sure there are like people who do like locations from the sagas and you can hike around and see them. Like, I'm sure I've heard of that. They've got to. That'd be so cool. I think it's interesting how we basically got like the precursor to that with Scott Legrim's Anvil. Like they're like, yeah. and it's still there, and you can go see it. You, you can know, see like it you want to do touristy stuff from Saga Age Iceland. Yeah. Oh yeah, I love that. Because since it's since it's being written about a few hundred years after it happened, there's always there's already that kind of like, and it's still there, guys. Go you check can see it out it in legend. Yeah, it's a historical yeah. monument. <laughs> I love that. That's the only one that I can really think of, but my brain is fried. Yeah. Hmm. To be fair, there's not really that much that comes through in, in this one in particular. Yeah. All right. Who would you want in your D&D party in this text? Oh, that's a tough one. Well, Thorolf, obviously. Yeah, Thorolf. I, I feel like Bjorn also, because yeah. even though he's a super troublemaker, he sticks to his guns. He's good at Viking. He stands by his wife. Mm-hmm. I like that. Okay, so we've got the terrible, we got the, the duo. I don't want Aik. Yeah, both he and Scott Legrim have the same problem. Where like, yeah. they're they're good in a fight, but they're not predictable. They're so angry. Who else? I guess Alvir. Because he's like the king's steward. He's very good with his words. Alvir Can... Fnoof? Yes. I remember you told me to remember that name. Yeah. And I don't know why. It worked. Because <laughs> he's important. He comes back. Oh, okay. Who else? I guess... Thorir or Brynjolf. No, we needed Brynjolf. What about Thorir? Yeah, let's do Thorir. Thorir. We got the father-son. We got son's best ghost. friend. <laughs> Somebody's going to turn into a ghost at some point. Yeah. All right. The Tolkien tally. Tolkien. Let's see. Well, we talked about the putting away of weapons. Yep. And that one. I think that's the only one for now. I mean, we get some of the poetry that comes in, but the... Shape That's... strength. There's even the the werebear Bjorn from the Hobbit. 
Bayorn. Bayorn. Yes, because it's the Old English as opposed to the Icelandic. Yeah, but like that's clearly why he has that name. Because yes. Tolkien liked the sagas, and there's a bunch of Bjorns in the sagas. There is a bunch of Bjorns in the sagas. And, and it means bear. Yes, he does turn into a giant bear. Yeah. And he's a vegetarian. It's my favorite thing about him. I did not remember that. Yeah. Although I don't know if he's strictly a vegetarian as a human or if he is a vegetarian also in his bear shape. Because bears are omnivores. That's just a yeah. lot of berries, you know. That's true. It's a lot of fruit. Well, I, I have been thinking of the like motif of like the one brother who's hot and blonde and the other brother who's the opposite of that as the Legolas Gimli motif. Actually, I, it's Faramir and Boromir. Oh, interesting. Faramir in the books is described as having black hair. I did not remember that. Because mm -hmm, it always pissed me off. It always it always really bugged me, and I think I think Boromir is described as being fair haired, but Faramir has black hair because he and Eowyn stand in Minas Tirith outside of the healing houses at the end, and he has a beautiful blue cloak that he wears and wraps around her. Hmm. And I, I remember the specific detail that he's dark haired, he's black haired, and it looks good against the the blue and the silver. You know, I bet that that may well be the uh, inspiration. It might. Because, like, again, Tolkien loved the sagas. Mm -hmm. And it, it would also make sense because Boromir has ill fate when going to the Fellowship. He mm -hmm. dies, but he has a noble cause. Spoilers. Well, the book's been out like a hundred <laughs> years. Lay off. <laughs> I don't think it's that old. It's getting there. Well, The Hobbit did come out earlier than that. Anyway, anyway, it's been out at least 50. Yeah. So yeah, that might be that might be a thing Tolkien drew from. All right. Now let's sit at the kitchen table. We have plenty of food in this text. We've got the whales, we got the eggs, we got the seals, we got the fish, we got the cattle, and the sheep. That's a pretty exhaustive list. I'm trying to think if there's anything you missed, but I think I think I got it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, so that's good for when you're talking about your uh, Arctic subsistence living. Yeah. Very fun. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. All right. Any terminology to steal besides some of these cool names? Oh, the ship parts. Ooh, the ship parts are good. So the gun walls are the sides. Well, technically, it's not the sides of the ship. It's like the little ridge that comes up over the side. Mm -hmm. uh, da -da -da, we've got the ooh booths. I think that's a good one. Yes. That's a very good one. Use those place names, people. The North River, the Cross River. <laughs> also, other other ship words like Seward. Yeah, Seward, Leward. Boom. Uh, Is Leward too? Are you kidding? Yeah, it's Leward. I told you. <laughs> I must have forgot. I just pushed that right out of my head. <laughs> like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, that's not a thing. Oh, um, the what's the term for the headland? A ness. A ness. That's good. As in Loch Ness. I don't know if that's related at all. Actually, it might be. Hold on. Let me check. I feel like it has to be. Because Loch is lake. Nope. It's named after the River Ness, which is which Wikipedia says probably derives from an old Celtic word meaning roaring one. So it ah. is not related. Fair. That's still a great word. A ness is a, a, a headland. It's a chunk that like sticks out into the ocean. Like a Hilton Head in South Carolina, if you're American. Yeah. All right, that's a good term. Okay. Street smarts. Lessons. We have so many lessons. Uh, teach your children sportsmanship. 
Number one. Very good. Yes. Don't give them halberds. To be fair, that was just because he wasn't supervised. (laughs) Supervise your murder child. (laughs) Do you know where your children are? Do you know who they kill? Do you know if there's blood on their hands? Oh my gosh. 10 out of 10. We need these advertisements now. Also, get your wife's consent, but also, like, probably get their family's consent, too. Or at least try. It doesn't hurt. Like, it's a little old-fashioned, but... Yeah. If it means a lot to them. But also, if they're being dicks about it and you really love her, yeah, do it. Maybe try and get the vibe from your your future wife and her family first to decide whether or not you need to ask the family. Yeah, 100%. Also, give gifts to people. Like, good gifts, though. It has to be, like, a good good gift. Not a cheap gift. Yeah, like an edible arrangement. Ooh, those are cool. I was actually being facetious, but I'm (laughs) glad you like the idea. See, I just, like, that shot me back to, like, my childhood where, where... Like, I remember seeing, like, the little fruit cutouts, and I was like, those are so cool. (laughs) You, like, okay, like a homemade edible arrangement, though. That would be an impressive gift, I gotta That would be a good gift. Don't go buy one. Like, make it yourself. Also, swords are great gifts. Swords are great gifts. Great gifts. Any kind of weaponry, really. Yes, but it has to be nice. Like, if you can rust it over the the fire, nah. Should be well made. Should probably be legal in wherever the person you're giving it to lives. True. Other than that, yeah, weaponry, great gift. Yeah, 10 out of 10. Except to children. Don't give children halberds. Yes, Yes, true. Great wedding gifts, though. Ooh, I believe that. Great wedding gifts. Okay. Best moment. Best moment in this saga. I I like the moments when the teenagers are acting like teenagers. Like the moment when Bjorn shows up and he's like, you're not my dad. You can't get me in trouble. (sighs) Like that one. And then the one where Prince Eric is like, I really like your boat, man. (laughs) It's a really cool boat. (laughs) Like just like, that's like my favorite, just guys being dudes, boys will be boys moment in this entire thing. It's just this guy who really likes this other guy's ship. That is very, very dude. It's, what's the word I'm looking for? Timeless. Yes. Those are my two favorite moments. I'm torn between Ale crashing the party as a three-year-old, which I thought was wild. (sighs) Insane. In in a nonsensical kind of way. Yes. But I also just like the kind of understated moment of Scott Legrim, like, taking the fancy axe, killing an Mm. ox, looking at how it breaks, just going like, and like sticking it up. Up in the rafters for a year and like not saying anything. It's like just looking at it. it is, huh? Yeah, it. he just knows. No, ten out of ten. You're right. That's the one. I think it's very good. It's very very good. That's that's the kind of moment where, in between all of the absurdity that occurs in this saga, like that's a moment of real literature and just art right there. Yeah, I agree. I love it. All right. The court. Court, you get to start again. Well, let's see. All right. I know she only came up in the one chapter that you skipped and then summarized. (laughs) I thought I was going to get the, I thought I was going to get it. Yes, but I knew you wanted her too, so I could not (laughs) risk it. I'm taking Gunhild. Gunhild, the witch queen. All right. All right. Okay. Fine. 
fine. I guess in that case, just for fun, I'm going to take Thorolf the Younger. Because I want to have both of them. I want the set. Final rating. This one has a lot of the classic bits that I remember from this saga. Mm -hmm. Like a number of the points that stood out were Ale's childhood in Scott Legrim's household. Like that's a lot of what stuck with me. Mm -hmm. So I want to give it an 8.5 just for having such like the material that stays with you. I think a lot of it is in this section. And it's, of course, a very good text overall. I'm deducting half a point. I'll give it an 8 simply because... There's so much there that you have to do a lot of keeping track. Yeah, that's true. And so, like, I'm skipping entire chapters of diversions, like, where they go to, like, the north of Norway and they're pillaging and plundering or, like, some random guy comes up, like, the Kettlebrand guy, like, he shows up and he never shows up again. That's right. I remember there being a lot of tax collecting among the Sami when I first Mm -hmm. read this. Yep. I skipped part of that section. (laughs) Because they just go up and they pillage and then they come back down and that's how Thorolf gets his wealth. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that now. Yep. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. This is from Leech Book 2, Chapter 65, Section 4. This is the noblest leechdom for the same. The same being, from the previous section, the, quote, Evil temptings of the fiend. (laughs) I love that this isn't a medical text. 10 out of 10. Just once I want to go to the hospital and be diagnosed with evil temptings of the fiend. I feel like there's a different hospital for that. (laughs) I mean, they've got that wing in the normal one, too. True. But anyway, if you are diagnosed with evil temptings of the fiend, what you should do is take myrrh and white frankincense and savine and sage and dyeweed and then of the frankincense and of the myrrh let there be the most so like they should you should have more of those than the other ingredients outnumber yep let the others be weighed of them let there be equal quantities i like that they're making a little bit of an attempt to give us some sort of proportion but it's not all the way that you could construct a consistent recipe True. Well, it it depends on how great the temptations are. Yeah. It's like equal amounts of these three and more than that of these (laughs) other two. It's like, okay. I feel like it also depends because frankincense and myrrh were pretty expensive. Yes. So at least you have proportions. You know, if you only have like a tablespoon of frankincense, you know. Yeah. I honestly think that a lot of the reasons that they're even in here is because they're A, expensive, and B, mm-hmm. they're in the, the Christmas in the story, Bible. which they're in because they're expensive. Yes. <laughs> hey, I mean, that's like a lot of women's healthcare products. Like, it's like women's vitamins now, they have like, um, it's like, boost your libido. And then if you turn it around and like, look at the back, or it's like, boost your hair or whatever. And it's just like, vitamin C, vitamin E. And then collagen. And it's like, okay, cool. I can buy each one of those independently for cheaper than what's in this bottle. Oh, I thought you were going to say like there were a bunch of crazy unnecessary ingredients. I mean, those two. But, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous. Like it's it's incredibly expensive and it's branded well, just like frankincense and myrrh. Fair. 
Go figure. Anyway. I never go into the supplements aisle. I don't I don't trust them because I know they're not FDA regulated and a lot of sketchy people sell them. And so I just avoid the whole thing. That's fair. There are a couple good brands that have been recommended to me by like health healthcare practitioners that I trust. And as someone who has like hormone imbalances and is a woman, some of them are helpful to me, but it's taken a lot of testing and trying, like figuring stuff out. Yeah, I did not know you had hormone imbalances. I do. I have PMDD, which is premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which I will get on my little preaching horse for a moment to oh, talk please. about. Because, well, only because it's it's like actually in it's not in the DSM five because it's not a mental disorder; it's a physical disorder. But a lot of doctors don't know about it, but it is absolutely a real thing. And essentially what it is... I've heard of it, but all I've been told about it is it's real bad. It's real bad. It's basically PMS on steroids. So instead of like, oh, I have mood swings or oh, I have cravings. It's like, oh, yeah, once a month I get suicidal ideations for a week. That is rough. It's it's rough. So if you find yourself as someone who gets a period having issues with like functioning for a week, like the rest of the month, you're totally fine. But there might be, you know, 10 days out of the month where just a third of your time, you know, yeah, yeah, where you just break down, you can't function like multiple breakdowns a day, then find someone who treats or specializes in that. Find some either supplements or meds. I know that a lot of SSRIs can be very helpful. There are, there are other meds that can be very helpful, but point is, you have probably been told that it's just your period or just PMS. No, 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 no. This is a real actual issue. It's a hormone issue. It can be treated. It can't be cured because it's literally your hormones, but it can be treated. It can be managed. My quality of life went up drastically once I figured this out, but it, it takes a while to figure that out. So please, if you are in that category, it is not just in your head. Please go get your hormones checked. Please do a blood draw. Like, get those levels checked, girl. How have I been recording this with you every, almost every week for like two years? And at no <laughs> point have I noticed that one week of every month you're having like severe mental issues. Because I have been adapting to it for 25 years. Fair. And I'm also like on those supplements and on those meds to help reg regulate it. Yeah. That speaks well of the... Uh... What's you call strategies you're using? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you definitely have to find the stuff that works for you. But once you do, it's totally manageable and life is a lot better. But yeah, like I can still tell. The other thing that I would recommend is start tracking your symptoms. Download like Flow or Clue or something because then you can really tell like, oh, this is just an off day versus like I've had five days in a row where I had a mental breakdown in the shower. Then you might want to start considering, you know, either, you know, finding a counselor and like seeing whether like you're having depression or whether it's PMDD. And in that case, like you're also having depression, you're just having monthly depression. So find a counselor for that too, but also get some medication. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, back to a more, less, a differently serious <laughs> ailment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the temptings of the fiend. Yes, indeed. You get all that stuff together. And then you have them rubbed to dust together in a mortar, and have okay. them set under the altar when it is Christmas tide, and let one sing three masses over them for three days in midwinter. You gotta wait until Christmas? Yep. What if I'm having temptings of the fiend in June? <laughs> well, that means you have six months to find myrrh and frankincense, at least. I mean, I guess that's a boon. 
But uh, it also, they, we're not done yet. Oh, oh no. Okay. So they're set under the altar when it's Christmas tide, and they need three masses sung over them for three days in midwinter, right. and at St. Stephen's tide, and St. John the Evangelist Day. Okay, so St. Stephen's Day is the day after Christmas. Oh, that would help. I was wondering if those are three different days, like three different periods of the well, uh, year. Because St. Stephen's Day is also known as Boxing Day. That's the day after uh, Christmas. That's like, that's the the Irish Black Friday is all the sales are on the day after Christmas. All right, I'm looking up when St. John the Evangelist's Day is. That's got to be like the New Year, right? The feast day of St. John in the Catholic Church, Anglican Communion, and the Lutheran calendar is on 27 December. Oh, so 25, 26, 27. Yeah, okay. So it is just for those three days. They just named, they just said it twice. Makes sense. Yeah, for three days in midwinter, which would be Christmas, St. Stephen's, and St. John's the Evangelist. Okay. Exactly. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's less, that's less work. At least you don't have to have it there at three different times during the year. You know which days those are. I wonder if that's written twice because some people knew the days only by the Saints Day and didn't have the calendar with the numbers. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't say like on the 25th, 26th, and 27th. It just says Christmas for three days. Right. But you would know. Oh, that's true, I guess. I feel like you would know Christmas and you would know the Saints days better than you would know the calendar days if you were like a medieval peasant. I've always wondered like how on earth we managed to keep a calendar going for so long. Because like I forget what day it is all the time and it's on my phone. I mean, honestly, there were so many calendars at so many different times, like all over during the Middle Ages, like like the late antiquity through to like the Renaissance. I don't know how we had calendars. Like I look at these medieval calendars and like, sure, there's Computus is hard. There's a lot of different days. They got the days wrong, whatever. But still, the fact that it can be calculated so reliably is wild to me. Like there were mathematicians and astronomers working so hard to find those numbers. I keep wondering if like maybe we missed a couple days somewhere and just no one noticed. I'm sure we have. We have to have. Yeah. Time is a construct anyway. Yeah, time is a four corner square. Um, And or a flat circle, depending on what your preferred media consumption is. But anyway. Anyway. You put it under the altar for three days. Yes. Those three specific days. Those three specific days. And for those three days, let the man take the leechdom in wine at night fasting, and what there is left of the dust, hold it and keep it. It is powerful against all dangerous infirmities, either against fever, or against typhus, or against poison, or against evil air. Which is how they thought diseases were spread. Yes, the miasma theory, which is honestly not that far off. For real. Like, that's, that's like, a step away from germ theory. Like, it's, it's, it's so close it can touch it. It really is, and especially, like, with how people talk about COVID. <laughs> mm-hmm. It makes sense to me. Like, all you have to do is go, oh, it's not the air itself. It's, it's stuff, the stuff in, the, in air. the air. And, of course, someone who believes in the miasma theory would be like, yeah, it's the evil stuff in the air. In the air. Like, I mean, and what's, so like, close. germs are the evil stuff in the air. It's yeah. the same thing. We just added some details. Yeah. I mean, it's tough when you can't look at the microscopic stuff that gets you sick. If you don't have that understanding, you can only go so far. Yeah. Also, there's the solution for what happens if uh, you have evil temptings of the fiend at times other than Christmas. The leech is supposed to keep the dust. You get extra dust. Yeah. And also, this isn't the only leech I'm listed for this, so presumably you could use the other ones at other times. Yes. Interesting. And 
writings also say that he who employs the leechdom is able to preserve himself for 12 months against peril of all infirmities. So, like, if you keep the dust on you? Yeah, I think so. Interesting. Then then you get a whole year with no sickness. That's a that's a good leechdom to have. Yeah. I mean, you have to sneak stuff under under the altar for it to work, but... I feel like you can compromise with your parish priest. You know, I wonder how much stuff was sitting under the altars at, like, your standard medieval church. Because it seems so like this much. comes up a lot in the leech book, and I can't yeah. imagine that it's only medicine people did this for. Like, maybe people just wanted to have, like, a blessed fork or something. Yeah, or, like, stick my baby's blanket under there, you know? Yeah. I, I can only imagine there was, like, a constantly rotating cast of materials under there, just getting blessed. Oh, yeah. There has to have been. Okay. Okay. That That's a lot. We covered a lot today. <laughs> yes. That was quite a lot. That was a lot, a lot. All right. So, that said, everyone, don't give children halberds. <laughs> and uh, Christmas is coming up, so please source your frankincense, myrrh, sage, and other such ingredients responsibly. It's August. Christmas is coming up. It's spooky season. Fair. It's spooky season. <laughs> also, I guess this won't be coming out for a month or two. Yeah, see, it's Christmas. <laughs> I'm sa- I'm saying this at the right time. I can see into the future. This is me doing the reverse engineering divination. Oh. Yeah, see, I come to you from the past. Anyway, <laughs> with that, listeners. Yeah, that's a good note to end on. That's a good note to end on. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, you can check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, for more medieval and geeky related discussions. And feel free to reach out. We are always excited to listen to you guys and hear what you have to say. We're on Twitter at Maniculum, and we're on Instagram at Maniculum Podcast. Special thanks to Sandra Boyle for creating our music. You can check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Welcome to the Maniculum Podcast, listeners. Right, yes, professional introduction. Yes, professional introduction. Oh, I need to put my microphone in. Front oh, of me. it's. So professional. We are the professionals.